Podcast like a motherfucker. Okay, so welcome to Amazon Podcast, episode 53. Yeah, second time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> had a bit of a mix-up on 52. Uh, the sound quality was a bit bad, so the so last episode got demoted to 52, and this is going to be episode 53. Yeah. So there's Henry P. Miller here, again uh, joined by my now-becoming-more-regular co-hosts. We've got uh, Casimir the Swede. Yes. And uh, we've got newly christened uh, Sassy Al, the Sasquatch. Yeah, the Canadian Sasquatch. <laughs> <laughs> bringing, the, bringing the sass. Uh, are, you, uh, are you as hairy as the Sasquatch as well? I uh, can be. He had a shave, uh, so he's a little bit less hairy right now. Yeah, I did. Uh, okay. I, did a, I tried to trim my beard on my own. Uh, I'm never doing that again. Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to pay a guy to do it but Why? uh just because these guys uh you know in the north part of town they know how to do beards uh for cheap, <laughs> for cheap and i don't know what you're trying to say there alex about the people who live on the north side of town i'm just saying they're good at, they're good at beard trimming and uh, they do it at a good price and and i and i usually get my stuff my, my business done there but yeah i tried to clean up for a family function and uh, i ended up having to shave it all the way down to like a number three on the razor so um i still got hair on my face but it's not it's not a lumberjack anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> anyway. So, obviously, the internal, the internal Dwarf? The Infernal Dwarf. <laughs> Too many beers already. The Infernal Dwarf book is, uh, has arrived. So, this is going to be our attempt at doing an Infernal Dwarfs-related podcast. Um, everyone else has already kind of released their Infernal Dwarf book reviews so we're going to try and do something a little bit different um we're going to focus on the um epic of kibbutesh i think it's called yeah Mm -hmm. um more than the actual rules themselves um but first we're going to talk some hobby some males and probably have a lot of tangents knowing (laughs) what happened last time (laughs) and and see see where we are in a few hours time so uh, first up, let's talk about hobby. So Casimir, have you been up to any hobby since the last episode? Uh, yeah, I've been, uh, well, not uh, a lot of diversity, but still hobby. I've been um, just painting more and more Seekers. So it's uh, I, I have just the paints to paint Seekers, so that's all I've been doing. I, I also painted the, like, the skin on some uh, other dwarves, but that's literally like a little blob where their face is inside the armor. <laughs> So, so are you that's... are you enjoying painting the dwarves more than you're enjoying painting the undead or the warriors? No, not more than the warriors, but definitely more than the undead because I I've talked about this before, but I started the undead the color scheme way back. So I painted in this very inefficient manner. Uh, for example, I used paints that didn't cover very well over a very dark base, so I had to go very many layers to get like a smooth coat. So, uh, so it's not. It's just not very fun to paint the undead in general. Uh, but the warriors are because I'm putting a, a bit more effort. It's more interesting to paint those. I would say. But the dwarves are just. It's satisfying to slap a lot of contrast on stuff and just see them all come to life really fast. So we actually started an Amatime 
painting log because basically Alex and Casimir were taking too long to go about it so I was like alright guys I'm just going to make a blog for you and then all three of us are going to post stuff on the blog as we go and then that way it kind of everything is in one place for if you're listening to the podcast and you can see what we're talking about in, in one go so we, we started a, a painting log uh, on the user blog section I think it's called Amatime P log so you can actually go on there and, and see what we're talking about. Um, so Casimir, I think you posted some of your dwarves on the painting log, right? Yeah, yeah. so I, I posted what I talked about last time. So I was finishing off the first unit and uh, and some uh, terrain as well as uh, abomination for the vermis form. Uh, but yeah, since then uh, I've uh, just made like a, a few more dwarves, but I, I guess they'll be up in a few days. I guess it doesn't take you that long to do them. No, it's, it's more about finding the time, and uh, unfortunately, compared to everybody else, being a, a researcher that only does theory and no experiments, uh, like the amount of work I'm doing during corona time is, is actually more than before, basically, so <laughs> I, I feel like I have less free time. Okay, so we, we can expect a few more Seekers for you in the next few days. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you, you are you just painting Seekers right now, or do you have anything else on the workbench? Well, I, I have a few handgunners as well, but uh, I can't you know I can't really do a lot on them because are they are they called handgunners, Casimir? Oh, drink. Oh, uh, actually, what are they? They're called marksmen with dwarf crown and handgun. Yeah, they're that's they're called clan marksmen. Oh wow! Okay. <laughs> I guess you got I see drink. that you've already got into like the lawyer theme of uh, the Infernal Dwarfs. Yeah, well, you know, I'm I'm uh, I'm just getting into the mood of the whole episode, you know. Yeah, like exactly. It. Just like. You're becoming a disciple of Lugar, is what you're saying? Exactly, exactly. I mean, you can clearly see on this tablet. <laughs> <laughs> I have the proper signatures. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, Alex, how about you? What have you been up to in the hobby? So I've kind of... So I was waiting a little bit for these horns for my exalted uh, Herald uh, to show up from Mercer Miniatures, which came back in. And I'm super psyched now because I'm going to glue those on and then probably do some demon painting because that guy's amazing. Uh, shout out to Mercer for being quick on sending the horns that yeah, uh, super fast, they got actually. forgot. It was like they showed up in like a week basically yeah. after you wrote also, them. Also, by the way, it's it's a Mercia miniatures, I think. Okay, thank you. Nice one, Casimir. Yeah, I only say this because they, when they started as a company, they used to send out emails to all the podcasts to mispronounce their name to like give them phonetic spelling of how it's supposed to be said. Well, they can yeah. they can send me a message on on the on the p log <laughs> um, because they because they because they forgot the horns anyway. So um, anyway, uh, so I'm pretty excited to do my exalted herald. Um, He's got like double axes and he's big and mean. Did and you did you build him with the two axes or the shield or both? So I went with both axes, but I had this idea of because I've got so many magnets of like drilling a magnet hole on the one shield arm, so he's just got basically an axe with a shield over it, just like the like. If you look on the website, it's basically that, and I guess they did that to show you that you can have one or the other. But I kind of like the way it looked. <laughs> so I'm kind of I'm sort of feeling like maybe I'll just do that anyway just because the shield is so good I mean I don't know it's if, quite detailed right yeah and I don't know if anybody out there is familiar with like Samurai Jack the cartoon show 
but there's like his there's like this big like the big villain in Samurai Jack. I think his name is like the Great Haku or something like that. The shield looks just like that character, um, and so I almost want to paint it just like him or as an homage to the Great Haku. You could also use it for something else, like a a banner or. Yeah, um, some kind of icon. Yeah, it's true. But if I put it, if I magnetize it, then I can always like magnetize something else to cover it if I don't want to use it like that. True. Like we talked about uh, taking like a little barbarian shield or something to just kind of look like it's part of his bracer. Yeah. That could look kind of cool too. Um, but anyway, so I'm psyched to do that. Uh, recently I did five hounds. Um, and so I just need to finish the basing on them. I, I just need to do like the tufts and do highlights on the rocks and I think they're done. So what, what can we see on your P-log section? So I wanted to kind of do the P-log um, in order of what I had painted just because you know, I'm, getting, I'm getting into the hobby and, and I sort of wanted to do it like a, as progression based as opposed to like showing just stuff I have like willy-nilly like so that I so for myself at least I can kind of see the order in which I did shit um, so right now I have one segment that is the warriors I did that have the magnetized shield so I can eventually convert them uh, to have like halberds or or great weapons or something like that uh, pretty easily um, and then I did another one for one of my heroes, which is the GW model called the Exalted Deathbringer, but I use him usually as a sorcerer, sorcerer character. Um, and he is like totally my, what I imagine as like the heavy metal front man you know <laughs> here's that pose for like sure he's totally posed out like he's hanging off of his mic stand and he's got like a fucking like a rock metal like glove in the air kind of like power power hand <laughs> um it's like doing the whole definitely doing the power stance yeah like i imagine he's just going like yeah you know <laughs> uh so, apologize for my vocals um <laughs> And, and so I think we need a, re uh, a, re a repeat of that one. Yeah, so, yeah, there you there go. go. Um, so uh, I kind of imagine him as being part of like a medieval heavy metal stage. And I want to put him on like a battle shrine that's basically like a rock and roll stage set up like in a medieval uh, like lich. Um, you, you bought like a lich altar graveyard Thing. Yeah, it's like this platform it's with like it's massive. With like it's, it's, it's got like a like a, like a spectral skull floating at the top of it with like a thorny crown and like some like some skeletal hands. I, I reckon I reckon it must be like wide. It must be like 120 mil wide and probably about 60 oh mil. God, what did you buy? Where 60, did you get it? 60 mil deep. I got off of Etsy. Yeah, oh. and, and you're gonna have to like mount this on top of like a, a hundred, uh, 50 by 100 base. Like, it's gonna have to be so high that it sits above all your warriors. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's that, gonna be awesome. It's yeah, gonna be so awesome. That's the best. Like, it's, that's the most nightfish you can do, right? <laughs> and so what can you fit on the small base? And like, yeah. shout out to Dragon Horde Minis on Etsy where I bought it. Uh, what else did you buy on that site? Straight out of Ireland. Um, I also bought this female lich that's like. 
uh, in the middle of casting some kind of spell that has like also she also has like a smoky wispy thing coming out of the top of her head that goes into like a spectral skull floating above her too so there's gonna be like a lot of skulls and then i bought some platforms well they're not intentionally platforms but they're gonna be that i got from like a a, a place in hartford england called paragon star also on etsy uh, I feel like I'm responsible for this Etsy influx. Like si since I mentioned the minis and printers one on a few podcasts and in the night scroll, everyone seems to be like buying stuff on Etsy or just buying 3D printers. So like I got these things called it's just, the the model's just called a death skull and it's got like a 50 millimeter base and it's like this tall towering fucking skull with like horns on it. Yeah. And I want to Are you going to put that at the back or so i want them to base? be like unit fillers for the rest of the unit um that i want to like have towering up sort of on the sides like almost like speakers or whatever you know <laughs> and then and then i i'm in my mind i'm gonna also like mod a little platform on top of them where i might have some like other characters on there either like um sacrificial slaves or babes or yeah, sacrificial babes, or um, or like some other music, some like musicians, like you know, we just cut the um, the drum off of like some uh, chosen, um, and I was thinking about making like a Japanese drum pose with like a a um, with like a, uh, barbarian. a barbarian character. It's the Games Workshop Marauder character. They have like they're sort of perfect for like having two arms, sort of like drumming, and they you know they're sort of bare chested and shit, so it'd be hilarious. Um, so anyway, I, I'm going to make this like medieval, like <laughs> medieval rock kiss concert. It's going to be like <laughs> a crossover, like Alice Cooper slash Slipknot slash, um, you know, like Dio slash Tenacious D kind of like outrageous demon rock concert for your battle shrine, <laughs> for my battle shrine with like unit nice. fillers that work with it. That's what, that's, what that's it, my mission. What are you going to do for the wretched ones? Uh, for the wretched ones, I've ordered shit from all over the place. I blew a lot of money on Etsy this week, but I also, <laughs> from King Games here in Denmark, I ordered some stuff uh, from the Reaper Bones um, model group that uh, they had. Just like basically some, it, most of the stuff I ordered is like Eldritch sort of, uh, you know, HP Lovecraftian tentacle monster stuff. Um, and then I have some sort of, uh, like plague, plague, uh, orc zombie creature things as well that I, I'm thinking I might work with also. Um, so I'm going to do that. So I have more than enough <laughs> to make like two squads of six wretched ones now, I think. What, what's the, what is it that's uh, drawing you to the wretched ones? Um... It's the grind attacks, uh, and so it's pure. It's purely like game game based, then, or not not like you think they're cool, or you think they're fun, or you... I mean, I think they're fun because of what they do in the game. Uh, you know, like it's a mechanic that's unlike the rest of them. There's there's obviously the randomness in them that I think is great, um, especially like for an opponent to try to evaluate what you're gonna do. Because like 3d6 move is potentially 18 inches, which can be <laughs> insane, like up in your face crazy, but it's also potentially three inches. So <laughs> like it can be just absolutely terrible. And 
Um, I've just had some like great rolls uh, and some fun moments with wretched ones and the grind attacks have been really fun and I think that they just cause a whole bunch of chaos for people like have, have you been using the master of retards thing uh, no so I I had so I think we're gonna talk about this a little later but Casimir and I had a game on uh, UB good segue so that was what I was gonna ask you next so you guys actually had a game on UB so yeah, I, I, persu- I persuaded you both to get accounts and uh, have a game. Yeah, I paid thirty bucks. I did the whole. I did the whole year fully subscribed. So if anybody else wants to kick the crap out of me, feel free to write on the P log or something. Yeah. I don't know. Well, you can just uh, PM Sassy L. On yeah, the forum. you can PM Sassy L. I'll take. <laughs> I'll take the ass kicking. Um, you're gonna have to be patient, but yeah, I'll, I'll help build up your ego. <laughs> oh. Yeah, seriously, if you want an easy game, like, right to our <laughs> <laughs> It's true. No, it's true, I'm I terrible. think the, the good thing about the retro ones, now, like, when you're starting out like this, is that they, they're one of those things in an army that makes your opponent, like, have to think a little bit more, because they, they're unpredictable, and, you know, you can't block them in the same way as you can normal things. And that's, when you don't play the teleportation and the warriors, you kind of lack units that... Uh, Make your makes your opponent like reevaluate how he plays, and retro ones really bring that. Yeah, I because agree. If you, for example, if, as a, if you play dwarves and then you take the miners, then suddenly your opponent's you know plan changes completely because he can't just like for example sit sit very far back and be safe. Like he needs to consider that there's going to be units coming on from his board edge, and the retro ones are you know of course not the same, but they have a similar type of thing where. You put it on the flank, and then suddenly he can't put, you know, fast cab or something that's gonna flee on that flank. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I really, I hear what you're saying. I really like them because I feel like they're, they're quite chaotic, right? Like, um, they have the chance of, they have the chance of doing really nasty stuff, and, you know, they have that resilience that's really good. And also, this time when you and I played, it's the first time that I played with um, a. A forsaken one, yeah, um, which I liked a lot. Actually, I think I think that the forsaken ones are even better. Um, yeah, it was it was very like difficult to deal with because of their res. Um, because the retro ones have like a really low, really low defense, really low res, right? Um, but they have that yeah. that save. But the forsaken one has a, has like high strength and then. Yeah, like it, it has sort of not high. Str- it has high str- higher high strength, strength, higher res, higher strength, higher res, and the yeah. same and the same, and the same save. save. And yeah, so, exactly. And so he like he was really tough to deal with for you, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like the only thing he's really lacking is uh, armor penetration because he's strength six, but only AP two. Yeah. But AP two is not bad when it's like a no. D six plus three automatic hits. Yeah, it's it's still it's completely fine. It's just that it, I guess it struggles a little bit if you would fight something like knights or uh, with a very high save. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So how did how did you guys feel about UB in general? Obviously, it was like your first um, experience of the interface. So was it like a positive experience? Like what what were you expecting? How did it live up to expectations? So it was UB2, right, to, yeah. to start off, right? Um, and the first thing was I had, I had no idea what I was getting into when I tried it, so I didn't know what, like, what I was going to expect, right? Um, so it was really great to have you 
you kind of like set up the game the first time for us and yeah. you put like the terrain in and all that shit and i had like gone on in advance and casimir had gone on in advance i think to like find some armies like unit representatives so we had some shit but i but like weren't really sure how to get it on the field and then you being able to like walk us through that was a really good thing yeah, I, yeah, I, I can. Very intuitive, I wouldn't say. Yeah, I think once you once you've done it a few times, it's easier. But I, I kind of knew from my own experience that it would be easier if you had someone to kind of walk you through it. Big time, big time. It was it was a it was a huge difference. I think if Casimir and I had just like met online and we're like, so how do we do this? It would have been fucking forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To, to be honest, I think we'd just like give it up at some point and just talk the limits set and then uh, went yeah. off. <laughs> yeah, I I agree. I think it would have been it would have been a, a fucking five and out kind of situation. Yeah. So I I would say my overall like impressions is that it's like it's quite clunky, but it allows you to to play a game. Like once you're playing, it it works pretty well, but there's a lot of things that's just annoying uh, to deal with. Yeah. So it's definitely less than ideal. Yeah, I mean, um, considering there's like nothing else out there, it's great, is my, is my opinion. Right, like as long as there's nothing else competing with it, awesome. Yeah. Because, because I would love to, like, it's, as I learned this week, buying a lot of shit on Etsy, um, it's expensive to buy units, um, you know, if you really, really want them <laughs> quick. Um, and if you don't want Games Workshop units, I mean, Games Workshop units are expensive too, but... I think Games Workshop is more expensive than Etsy. But, um, yeah, definitely. But it's but the, the point is like, uh, yeah, but the, I guess the, the advantage of the Games Workshop ones is that I can go to the store and just take them home Yeah. Uh, and start painting. But um, but either way, like it's still it's all pretty pricey. But um, if I don't know what a unit does, it, it's a it's a hell of an investment to like buy it, paint it, and then and then start testing it out. So I think that UB and like online online um, simulators in general are an excellent way for people who are into the into the gaming and into the hobby. To like try stuff out without over committing financially because it could be because it because i think that the financial barrier is probably one of the things that holds people back from this the most uh next yeah. to the time next, so it's like i think first it's cost and then it's time that probably intimidates people out of this because it takes time to paint your minis obviously uh but it takes money to get the minis and get all the paints and all that shit together as well yeah i, th I think if you're if you wanted to start a new army and you're like playing ub what you probably what you should do is play a few games with the army that you want to play with maybe that's infernal dwarves <laughs> and uh well, it is now and uh play a few games and see if you like the way that the army plays and and test it out and then have a one have a good idea of what you're getting yourself into and two have a good idea of what units you like to play with yeah so in that respect it's also a really valuable tool yeah it's excellent in that respect i mean i think it's that's exactly so what's perfect did, did you guys have like a, a positive experience i mean yeah I, like i it was the first time i got to play casimir you know he's in a whole other country so it's it's kind of difficult yeah. for us to like get together and actually have a game. Yeah, so, we haven't even met. Like, as soon, I mean, if there wasn't for Corona, we probably would have by now. But uh, 
Yeah, but we haven't. Yeah, we haven't met in human form. Uh, <laughs> only in the virtual space. Um, and and you know like. Uh, so it was great, you know, because Casimir got to spend and I got to spend some more time together, and I got to I got to see how he plays. He got to I got to see dwarves, which is an army I've never played before, um, which was fun. Uh, you know, even though I got my ass whipped. <laughs> and but then again like i'm okay with getting my ass whipped that's the whole that's my whole sort of thing is it's okay it's okay to fucking kick me i uh i'll learn better that way are you saying that like when you so when you lead the fluff of uh, you know ministry games like they always talk about these armies that the cool guys are just killing and killing are you saying that you like your army is that army or it's like i, I need to illustrate about how awesome this imperial dwarf unit is well you know it showed up, and then Alex Army was there, and just kind of fucking smashed. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm the fucking, I'm the, I'm the that punk ass bitch army that gets fucking smoked in all of the epic stories. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's easy to beat on chaos, right? It's easy to fucking shit on them because, like, they're faceless. They're just dudes in helmets. Yeah, that's true. You know, but we're real people too. You know, <laughs> we have feelings. You we were, just, you were once real people. We but... just have feelings towards. Fucking awesome no, gods. No, no longer. Um, but yeah. Uh, so it was... I think that, like, I, I would certainly... I can certainly see the value in it. I don't think that I... That I... Like, I don't regret spending 30 bucks on the year's subscription. Because I think that I can get a bunch of games out of that. Um, yeah. You know, and... Um, you know, as I've probably mentioned a few times on the podcast, like I have, I have a, a kid now, and um, being able to play a match from home is like actually even better, right? Because I don't need as much uh, sort of runway time to plan time away from home. I can just be like, oh, it's evening, yeah, let's start a game, and we can save the field at any time, so we can just drop it and pick it back up again. So. I think it's really convenient. Obviously, I love playing with the actual miniatures, and that's what I would prefer to do. But like, super convenient. Yeah, for me, for me, it doesn't really compare with playing a real oh. game. But it, it's a it's a good tool for like these times, especially. Yeah, I think measuring yeah. measuring is also one of probably the biggest perk of the system. Yeah, it's super it's super obvious what you're measuring. Yeah, I mean, it prints it. As you do it, so it's um, unless you put good. your units in the wrong place, but yeah. Um, well, I mean, I have to say though that one thing I noticed really hard was that I, I mean, like I measure a lot when I play at the table. I measure with my like, you know, judgment the distance. So I look at the figures. I'm like, well, I know that's kind of this far, you know. So like, I can expect them to be here by this turn or wherever it is. And on UB, I've absolutely no idea. Like, I need to really measure every distance because I can't tell how far it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's quite easy, and it's quite it's quite once you work out the measuring system, it's quite easy just to say just to click on something and say okay, well this is the arc, and this is the uh, the distance. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you something. We had like a moment where I was trying to back up out of Alex's arc with uh, a unit of greybeards, yeah. and then I could get like really, so I was like my corner was like kind of like 
just touching the, the like actual line of the arc and then we were really unsure like do we like do you play the outer edge of the lines or the inner edge or the center or like it's just kind of um, difficult to tell if i'm honest i'm i don't know but you should just agree with your opponent at the start of the game like in, in the last game that i played i played against a belgian etc player or no a dutch etc player sorry and he was like That's okay so sense. so the way that we play is we play anything which is touching the line if it's touching the line, it counts as on the it counts as within the range. If it's over the line, it's out of range. Okay, so I think that's, probably, that's the easiest way to do line. it. Yeah, I, I think I think that's the best way as well. I mean, the thing is with the measuring tool, um, you can clearly see that the that the one side of the line is actually the start point on the measurement measurement. But um, just saying something is fine, right? Like. When you're playing on the table, it's like impossible to get a perfectly accurate yeah. measurement anyway. You, you'd so. be as much more accurate in that respect. So like being super anal retentive at that point is almost silly. Yeah. Because it's like you would never you would never be able to make that call in real life. So giving giving a fucking millimeter here or there, it's probably okay. You'd be surprised how many games come down to that that millimeter whether it's like in range or not in range even on the tabletop you'd be surprised like where somebody goes hang on though yeah yeah you, you would be surprised let's measure it I, f I find it funny though that a lot of people who uh, who are really anal about that and it comes down to that that measurement you know they that they still in the early turns before it matters they're super loose with their movements and nudging everything and you know like really not taking care and then it comes to that turn and suddenly it's super important but i mean Every move, like every movement you did before that, lead, led up to this point. So if you didn't do those accurately, then you can't like, you can't say that that millimeter or a tenth of a millimeter should matter in this case. I think. Um, yeah. So my hobby, um, I've been adding to the P log, as you can see. If you go on there, I finished my Thicket Beast BSP. It looks sick now. Cheers, bro. That white with that like, yeah, like, ble cool. that, like, like bleached wood on the front, like that's armor. Yeah, I wanted it to look like a birch tree a bit. Yeah, it just looks like bleached wood, like uh, like something that's been um, like uh, in the water or something, and not it's sort of been stripped back. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it's it's nice, and, and that makes sense as armor, right? It's like yeah. his his like his like fresh clean wood is underneath it. The brown yeah, yeah, wood is yeah. underneath <laughs> it, and then like his exactly. It's like a like a beech tree that like sheds its white bark yeah. and has like the darker underneath. That's what I was going for. But then his like yeah. hardened his hardened surface yeah. wood is all so yeah. Like a, I, I wanted it to well. I wanted it to look different to the thicket beast that I've used, and I, I used it basically what Casimir was actually here when I built it. I was yeah. like, Casimir, do you think I can fit a tree man onto a 40 by 40? And you were like, no. I was like, watch me. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I had like a spare tree man kit. Uh, from I bought like um, one of the Silver Elves like big box sets. And I, I already have two tree men. Or tree, fa tree fathers. Drink. Tree folk. I already have two tree fathers. So I had like a spare one. I was like, okay, I'm just gonna try and fit this uh, tree father onto a onto a 40 mil base and use it as a thicket shepherd. And um, it's it's basically made out of the tree man kit. And yeah. uh, I, I used... would say like the, the thing that you did was that you kind of all the limbs you just cut off some of the connecting bits, so you made everything a bit more stumpy. 
Yeah. And you, just, and you glued it together again. Yeah, I just like chopped it up and put it back together in a different way, basically. Yeah. And um, I used like the loincloth as the banner. And um, I put a few bits from the the Games Workshop. What the fuck are they called? The, uh, what are the Games Workshop ones called? The Thicket Beasts. Uh, Treekin. The Games Workshop tre yeah. Age of Sigmar Treekin. Like they come with like axes and I used the axe poles for the banner top for the crossbar. And then I used the loincloths and added a bit of green stuff to make it fit. But uh, you can check that out on the P-Log. Yeah, yeah. So, so one thing I'd like to say about it is it's kind of interesting because when you built it and I looked at it in real life, I was like, this all looks like really to scale. But when, then when I look at the picture, like because I know that what the tree, like the, what's it called? The tree lord or tree father kits looks like, uh, it looks really, really like stunted when I look at the picture. Because <laughs> like I see, I see the face, you know, and then I'm like, oh, this is what the body should look like, and then it's like half the size. So, yeah, oh. it's it's like uh, completely in the middle between the the tree father and the thicket beast. It's like in the in between sizes, so it, yeah, it looks but, much bigger than the thicket beast, but much smaller than the tree father. Yeah, but saying that, I, I really like that though, because like I, I like that the uh, that your tree models, you know, don't just look like humans if they were trees, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I also finished my first unit of Kestronites today. Yeah, yeah, they look great. By the way, you should put those on the log. They are on the log already. Oh, you got them up? Nice. Yeah, yeah. Don't nice. mess around. Nice, nice, nice. Oh, they're also on the log, so you can go to the user blogs and have a look at them. Um, these are made out of Games Workshop Warhook Rider Kestrels. And then I used some like 40k. I don't know what they're called in 40k, like the Eldar, Dark Eldar, Green Goblin. Yeah, they like surf discs or something. Surfer guys. Yeah. And then uh, some random bits, and they used like the leftover parts from the Dark Elves, the what they call the Dark Riders sprue, like the shields and the and the heads, just to finish them off. So they're kind of like surfing a bit on the on the backs of the Warhawks. So these guys really remind me, the guys on the Hawks, remind me really of Ninja Gaiden. Not like how the ninjas sure. work. Not sure what that is. Oh, yeah. Maybe Alex knows, like yeah, the design it, of their uh, helmets. Yeah, yeah. Well, because back in, you mean talk, the, the really old one? The, like the original Ninja Gaiden or the one, the, the more modern one? Uh, I, I think the old one, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, like the old, like 8-bit one from like Nintendo had just basically like you know i think they were supposed to be soft material but because it was 8-bit you know it just looks harder uh but i think I, I think i know what you're saying uh yeah i mean they look like fucking badasses is, is basically the summary i think yeah. <laughs> i guess that's what i was going for <laughs> <laughs> and you know sylvan elves there's a lot of dudes and ladies like with their faces out you know like kind of like the you know you got your blade dancers and all this like fancy sort of semi sort of nude characters or whatever and uh these guys just look like like skyhawk ninjas which is nice i think it's a nice style yeah i, I part of me really likes like the kind of sitting down on the warhawk kestra knights like, like the really old ones. Yeah, like I, I like I like that kind of like the knight aspect of that. Like they're actually mounted on it. 
But then the other part of me, maybe the more realistic part of me is like, okay, there's no way that they could like sit around the neck of a kestrel in well, flight. Like yeah, but it's okay for them to just stand with, with only two feet touching. That's yeah, more dude, realistic. They, they can fucking surf on the back of them. That's way more realistic. Okay. Have you have you seen the have you seen the I think isn't it like a squirrel on the back of a crow? I think like realistic for an elf. I'm pretty sure you can almost an I'm gonna, oxymoron. I'm gonna Google it now. It's sort of an oxymoron of sorts, right? Like No, there's like there's literally there's literally a picture of a squirrel on the back of a crow, I'm sure. Wow. I, I think that if you want them to be mounted as if they're like actually riding the castrons, you would like, to, to make it look good, you would need to make some kind of saddles or something. Yeah, look. Because... It's, it's not a squirrel. It's a... Uh, it looks like a... Um, chipmunk. Uh, no, it's not. It's a ferret. A ferret on the back of a, a bird. It's a woodpecker. A, we- a weasel it's riding a, a on the back of a woodpecker. Yeah. I don't think he's riding on him. I think he's trying to kill him. Yeah, probably. But yeah. <laughs> if you put in a weasel riding the back of a bird into Google, you can find it. <laughs> So it definitely can happen. Weasels <laughs> can do it, so can elves. What's exactly, exactly. Not much difference there. Again, the realism of an elf riding on the back of a giant bird is <laughs> sort of using the term realism as an oxymoron, but it's, it's <laughs> so fine. Alex, you know that there's a UD unit, which is essentially a skeleton surfing a giant cobra? Of course there is. <laughs> I just watched, and I don't remember what it's called. This there's like this movie that's on Netflix right now about um, it's about like it's like based on um, the gods of Egypt with Nicolai Costavaldo in it. Oh yeah, yeah. And like, I think uh, I saw it. and like, um, who's that? Gerard Butler is like the villain in it, and um, there are these like giant scorpion riders. That just roll around and they're super dangerous and it's just it's just super fucking silly. There's I think. also giant scorpions in Ninth Age. Of course there are. The, are those the UD care? Are the Undying uh, yeah. Dynasties? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, you de- start to see why I play them, right? Yeah, I mean they sound sweet, visually at least. <laughs> Do they crumble like other undead cre- uh, yeah. units? Yeah. No, but uh, the, uh, usually like the monsters are uh, statues, so they crumble a little bit less because they're made of stone instead of just uh, skeletal parts. And instead of vampires, what are the leading characters called? Uh, m- uh, m- so it's like a pharaoh and uh, the hierarchs or the kind of uh, priests or mages. Okay. So like uh, kind of like imagine like the mummy. But they so they're so they're mummies. Yeah, exactly. Basically, like they're they're also undead. Is this still a curse of the mummy rule? Uh, yeah, so if you if you kill a pharaoh, you get like a strength 6 hit, I believe. Oh. So it's kind of, it doesn't have a huge impact, but it can actually kill, you know, something as a last revenge. I mean, that, that Seeker's fucking take you with me thing is ridiculous. <laughs> oh yeah, my god. So, so, so I think after talking about you guys playing, how how what's your what's your thoughts on uh, dwarves? Now you've now you've done one podcast on dwarves and now you've played against dwarves. What do you think? So listening to the podcast and listening and like reading the questions, right? Like um, like listening to what you guys were saying in the last podcast and re- and and hearing the questions about it. 
I was sort of lulled into this idea that Casimir was going to fucking sit in a corner, but he vanguarded like right in my face before round one. <laughs> and then I think you also moved first, Casimir. Yeah, I deployed. Uh, so we were trading deployment, I think. Yeah. And then at some point I'm like, I'll just deploy to go first. So I got to vanguard and then moved nine inches. Yeah. So you like were literally like within four inches of my units at the start of the game and I was totally pinned in and and uh because I had kind of thought oh well, I got I've got one or two turns to like make my way up there anyway um you're, you're playing warriors so you kind of wanted to fight yeah yeah uh not not in the setup not in the way that I had lined up my characters or my units but yes I wanted to fight um but uh but yeah like seeing how far dwarves can vanguard I'm kind of like, so they can vanguard that far, and you were saying that you can take a, an ability, basically, with a lot of units that allow you to do that. So you could have had even yeah. more units, even closer to my face. Yeah, I think that, like, if you, I think the maximum <laughs> I could have done is I could have had three Seeker units and then one more unit. So you could have, like, four units doing that. So, I mean, but I mean, that's a lot, like, two Seeker units is a lot of fucking pain. Yeah. For anybody, right? Especially like even when I was smashing you. Okay, like you got to Alex, Alex shot think about it like this: like you're a warriors player, yeah. So you want to fight. So the seekers vanguarding in your face and being twelve inches plus nine, which is what twenty one inches forwards in the first turn. Oh, I, is fine for you. Yeah, yeah. I'm, but imagine if you're playing like a shooting army that does not want to fight, and and you <laughs> technically you can deploy eighteen inches apart in some in, in some deployments. Yeah, so I'm not complaining about the fact that he was in my face to fight um, because I'm warriors and oh, that's so that's so lame for, for my units. It's that because I, I was brought to this expectation that they were just going <laughs> to fucking sit there, you know what I mean? Yeah. That I was like, oh man, my deployment doesn't make any sense now. Uh, and I got really spanked like quite hard for how I deployed and then how I moved in the first turn. It, it really, really affected me. Um, and now that I've learned that lesson, I will certainly make adjustments in the future. But yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree that I that I want to fight early. It's just that if I had known that he could do that, I would have put a lot more units in positions to support each other instead of, instead of the strategy I had, which was that I was going to push up on, in the center and push up on a flank. Uh, and yeah, then it, try to encircle him, uh, which I didn't need to do. I could have just kept everybody basically, <laughs> at, you know, in supporting lines with each other so that I could charge and then charge in the flank. And, you know what I mean? Basically had a lot more advantages against him over the first two turns. Yeah. But I like kind of... The, the, yeah, so go the ahead. Vanguard really creates a, like a lot of distance. Like what, what, for me, when I, you know, when you play as a dwarf, you can kind of... Put your seekers in the warrior's face, and even if they get killed, then suddenly the warriors have to kind of trudge all the way across the board to get to your soft shooting units. Yeah. So, whereas instead, if you just play it safe, then if something goes wrong, then everything just falls apart. I assume. Yeah, I mean, so if I had, um, if I had not, if I had put my um, random move units closer to the main army. Then I think I could have run up at your guys a little more, but I but I'd never seen what the what your guys could do before, right? Yeah. So I was like, oh, I really should just sort of spread this out a bit, you know, and 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 stay a bit safer. But I think I could have, 
I would have easily or happily sacrificed uh, some of like my one of my wretched units against your seekers to buy time for some other guys to go far up the flank and go into your ranged units, right? Like, I think that would have been a bit smarter, but. Uh, you know, I, I'd never played dwarves before, so... <laughs> As it happened, you charge everything in turn one. <laughs> well, I charged what could charge turn one, uh, except for the dogs, which I should have charged to free up my barbarians, uh, which was a huge mistake uh, that I've also learned now. Thank you, everyone, <laughs> for your input. <laughs> Um, maybe we can do the next time we do a UB match. We can take screenshots every turn so we can show the movement uh, and put them up somewhere, so that um, you can put up, you can make your own little bat report on the Amazon yeah. painting log. Yeah, exactly. So that that way, um, when we talk about it, people can see how I fucked up <laughs> and give like and give some like either just talk shit or just give me some positive feedback. Say though that I also made like lots of, of really stupid mistakes. Uh, for example, when I vanguard my seekers up, uh, I had uh, like one seeker unit really in the middle facing his army, and then one on the flank. And I had two super killy dragon seekers. So I thought, well, I should have one in each unit so that each unit can fight pretty well. Whereas obviously I should just put both in, in the unit in the center to you know really like break anything. And then my second mistake was that the guy that was in the center, he was all the way in the wrong corner of the unit. In my head, I thought, I'll just make way when I get to fight to where he needs to be. But uh, Alex charged me in like every direction at the same time. <laughs> so so he, he was like on the other side of the unit from his Feldrock uh, ancestor. So he never got to fight him. Yeah, yeah. so that was one redeeming property. Yeah. Good, good work, me. I guess the was the Feldrak out of combat after the first uh, round. No, he made it to he made it to the end of Casimir's round two, and then he was dead. He died. Yeah, so yeah, he died. So yeah. kind of what happened was that he he on after we've been fighting for two turns, he fell out of combat, and then I won what was left of the combat, and I had a unit of seekers coming in from the flank who overran into the Feldrak. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, and he. Fucking failed his rolls hard. <laughs> yeah. I think I got two hits with him in three rounds, or like each round I got I averaged about two hits with him. Yeah, yeah we happens. saw UB dice pretty hard. I have to say. Yeah, what did what did you think to the UB dice? It's it's insane. They never seem to roll any averages. It's always like all hits or all misses. It's uh, pretty crazy. Okay, so um, just to end this section, just to, on the UB dice note. I've played a, a social distancing tournament, and then uh, three out of three of my last three games, someone has made a 12-inch charge against me. Nice. Yeah. So I've, I've had three times I've lost the game because someone <laughs> rolled double six. Double six. <laughs> With two yeah, dice. You know, like you're on UB, you're like, I might as well. Well, that's, I think that's like a pro tip, actually, more than a complaint. Right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like Take all the charges. Don't, yeah, well, don't don't give your opponents uh, twelve inch charges. Is the is the pro tip. So um, we do have some mail. Yeah.
So, we actually had a reply based on our last episode, because we had a guy called Jeff, who wrote to us about dwarves. Um, the last episode, we talked quite a lot about dwarves, extensively, with uh, Fraz, the angry Scottish dwarf. And um, we got some feedback from Jeff. He, he wants to thank us for having the discussion on dwarves. And he said, actually, from the episode that we did talking about list building for dwarves, He's going away from his normal build, which is the king on a throne in a big unit. And he's thinking about using some other builds because that's going to be more fun for his opponent. So I guess we right made on. a we made a difference for, for Jeff's list building, which is great to hear. Because, uh, I mean, without without going into too much detail, in the, last, in the last episode we talked about how maybe you can make some more fun builds for you, both you and your opponent by moving away from... Death Star type builds with one unkillable unit, and despite yeah. Jeff thinking that maybe this is what he thinks in his mind is like the the fluff way to go, he he's thinking maybe it, he will play a bit more interesting build in future to make it a more fun game. But I think it's also that um, you know I think he was also kind of convinced that not just will it be more fun for him and his opponent, but it's still like a strong competitive strategy right so it's, yeah. it's yeah. like it's like looking at the looking at the cornering death star bundle build you know that's that's one strategy that seems to have propagated as working out there right into the world and so everybody kind of knows that that has a way of working um but that doesn't mean that's that's the optimal build strategy for dwarves it just means it's a strategy that people are able to yeah. Yeah. to use effectively it doesn't mean it's the strategy right and I think that that's really cool that he's like I'm tired of being called a cunt at <laughs> and having people not want to shake my hand and I want to play I want to play in a way that like I can still kick people's ass but they think it's at least they think it's fair yeah. you know what I mean and that's I like that that's really cool it's commendable yeah and that, that was uh, so I made a like list building post on the dwarf forum to try to get some input he, he actually he actually mentioned your post Casimir in his mail yeah he did yeah mm. so so I, I did it after I, I play we played Alex and okay. uh, you know like I had some people come in and say you know like you should probably just add a king and get all the stuff in and then the magic is good and I looked at it and you, like when you start to add all these things in you have to take in take out all the things that are mobile all the things that can go out and do other things than just you know like either sit in the corner or march up the board so that that was one of those things that i made as a stipulation to myself when i built the list is that i don't want to have a war machine on the list and i don't want to have a death star and then i said okay what can i get for that like what kind of shooting can i get that's more interesting than the war machine for example yeah, well, I thought I definitely, even though you spanked me, like I had a lot, I had a lot of fun playing that game, right? Yeah, like, we, like we pretty much knew at the end of the first half of round two that I, that that you'd won, but yeah. there was, but there was still lots to do. You know what I mean? Like I, I felt like there was still there was still a lot of like little scenarios to sort of play out and situations for me to experiment with with the units I hadn't played with yet, so. You know that that wouldn't have happened, I think, if you just stayed back in the corner. Yeah. Good so, on Jeff. That's good what, that's good on Jeff. I think the I think from this feedback, like the podcast had its desired effect. We 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 kind of I think we kind of set out to to discuss like how how it's possible to play dwarves in a, a fun and constructive way, and 
Sounds like we succeeded for both Casimir and Jeff. Yeah, you saved two souls. Yeah. <laughs> um, he also says he like he wants to encourage our blog posts. Um, he wants to see more from you, Alex, in the blog, and oh, right he also enjoys your sass and hopes that you keep going with the sass. Uh, as long as there's fucking armies other than the chaos army in this game you're gonna hear lots of sass from me <laughs> I, think, I think this episode is gonna be full of sass once we start getting into the infernal dwarves oh my god i mean i know we're not doing a re- if we were doing a review of the book every fucking unit would be just me being going what the fuck and then like the <laughs> items i read the items and i was like what the fuck like my brain was just like melting down a couple of nights ago, just like by my, I'm just by myself, you know, trying to not yell while I'm sitting at my computer because my kids asleep, and I'm just like, the fucking, why did I pick Chaos Warriors? I, oh, drink. Yeah, <laughs> didn't even need to tell you. Oh. Why did I pick Warriors of the Dark Gods? Um, because they're awesome and I love them. <laughs> I mean, they're they're definitely one of the coolest armies out there. I'd say. Yeah. And, and I get to paint a lot of helmets instead of faces, <laughs> which is, like, my jam. I don't know if you saw one of my posts on the blog of, like, me trying to do the teeth and eyes of that fucking demon. <laughs> but it's like, this is my first attempt at teeth. Herpter. <laughs> like, like a cross-eyed child trying to put a paintbrush on his tiny, pot, tiny I, spot. It's just like, <laughs> I just, like, smeared white across, like, his whole mouth. Like all of the stuff, all the shadow that was inset. I was like, like, look, daddy, I did a picture. (laughs) Like I was, and the worst part is in my head, I was like, okay, be real gentle. Just, just lightly touch the tips of the teeth. Just lightly touch the front part. People won't see shit. You just need to like highlight the tips. And I was like, nah. (laughs) Okay. uh, I'll just fucking wax that red again. (laughs) Yeah, I mean that's. I think that most people start doing their eyes and teeth and facial features like that. That you kind of paint the eyes or the teeth, and then you fill in the lips afterwards. You know, you just paint like paint over what you messed up. Uh yeah, it could be a smarter way to do yeah. it. Yeah, I know. I know even some like you know really experienced painters uh, that do uh, you know very detailed versions of eyes. They say that they paint the eye first and then the face around it because if you think about it, the eyes are kind of sunken a lot of the time. So it doesn't even make sense that you try to paint them after you finish the face. Mm. So I, I would do that sometimes that I undercoat like a base coat and wash everything. And then I do the eye uh, before I highlight the face, actually. Really? Oh, smart. Yeah, So because then, then you can kind of go back and fix everything around the eye. So it uh, doesn't look retarded. So what I do is I paint the face first and then I do the eyes. And then the bits that I fucked up on the eyes, I go and paint over. Yeah, I mean that—that's fine as well, right? Like, uh, I just figured that you can, uh, you know, cut out one step if you just do the whole face after the eye. Yeah, because I mean, like you said, the eyes are generally inset, so then um, you just have to not get your brush in that gap mm. to leave it to leave it alone, which is smart. Yeah. This particular demon, his eyes like literally jump out of his face. They're like <laughs> two like like lobster eyes or something, you know. <laughs> And so I was just like, oh, I just have to fucking dot this thing. And then there's just a big gap. And it still look. I mean, I'm terrible at it. I would love to see somebody's nice version of it. But um, I think 
think that's something that will just come with time because yeah. it's uh, brush control and it's just about how many hours have you spent you know trying to put the brush in the right place yeah i did try you know so for um some of the little skeleton skulls on my warriors weapons right there's like sometimes there's these little skulls on them and for some of them, I tried it. I decided to put bone on it uh, instead of just being like a metallic skull. And I actually took a very like tiny tipped permanent marker and just dipped the like just like poked it in the holes to get it yeah. really dark in the holes. And it actually worked really nicely. Um, so I've been thinking about using a that if I want to do pupils to do it like with a with this fine tipped marker. Yeah, there's a lot of people who do that. Yeah, I I, I have the same. Uh, I've actually never, I've never found, like, I've never spent the time to actually buy one of those markers because it, for some reason I don't find the pupils very difficult. Well, you know, but, if you're a wizard, you don't have to fucking do that shit, So, Catherine. So here, here's a hobby tip for you. Um, in general, when you're doing eyes, uh, you should do, obviously do the, like, the iris, no, the white bit first. Yeah. And then when you're doing eyes, you shouldn't do a dot, but you should do, like, a line. So it goes from top to bottom of the eye. So you shouldn't go for like a circle in the middle of the eye, but you should go for like a line that covers like the top and the bottom of the eye. So and why, you, why is that? Um, because normally when you look at an eye, you don't see, you don't always see the, you don't normally see the bottom oh. of the eye. You don't oh, see the whole circle anyway. Yeah, you, you don't always see like the whole circle of the eye. You usually yeah. only see like the bottom of the pupil. Or the top I, of the pupil, depending on I where you're you. looking at. Yeah. So it look it looks much better when you're doing when you're making the pupil larger, and like yeah. the eyelids, like reach for the top and the bottom of the eye. Mm. So you have like a, you end up with like a bit of white, then the black pupil, and then a bit of white. Yeah, Henry's so completely nice. right. Like what I try to think about when I make an eye is actually if you look at an anime. And you look at how they make the eyes, like usually it's like a massive fucking pupil and then there's like a white on the outer side, for example. So that's kind of what I try to think about. So I, I like basically make the eye mostly pupil and then it has like some white in the corners. And that usually looks a lot better than when you make a really small pupil. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So I think uh, after this massive hobby section, we should move on a little bit, continue the... What about the other 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 mail? Yeah. So the the rest actually we have we haven't even finished this mail yet. Oh, nice. Okay. So Jeff, Jeff's got more. Jeff Jeff continues and he's he's asking about the slow release schedule of the ninth age, and uh, he he's a bit concerned that his Dwarvenhold's army book is going to take another ten years to come out, and he's also asking about if there's anywhere where he can find the existing background, and if it's uh, not too difficult to find or like where he can actually learn about what's going on in the ninth age world so it's one thing i haven't done that i mean obviously there's all the official documents that are released and all the scroll issues have a lot of tidbits in them but there's also the wiki i believe and yeah. i haven't spent that much time on it but i know that they put up uh, like a lot of uh, just general lore information there yeah so there's a lot of places as Casimir says that you can find um the background for the ninth age uh, the best place I would say is the is the night scroll, because there's yeah. lots of little bits in there that kind of if you if you really take the time to go through it, um, you can find lots of really cool information uh, in the scroll, especially in the background compendiums. Mm. Um, however, 
we are we currently have an initiative within the the team that is kind of compiling all of the night scroll background and all of the rulebook background and everything together and putting it all into like one easily accessible place on the website awesome so this is something that will hopefully be released soon i want to say but uh it is it is kind of work in progress so so uh if you can't wait then you should have a look through the night scroll have a look through the wiki there's a lot of information on there to kind of get you started and then um hopefully in a few weeks time we'll have this new resource which is going to be very like background heavy on the website that sounds perfect really cool yeah nice i mean it can be a challenge to try and um like uh if you haven't if you haven't gone through all the ninth scrolls like as they've come out yeah to, i mean if, if, you're, if you're new to it as well like there's a lot of night scrolls yeah yeah so, you really churn them out yeah every every I mean, two months <laughs> it's a uh, almost almost it's Sometimes you do, don't you do them? So do you sometimes do them back to back months or? No, only every every other month we do them. Yeah. So and the other part with regards to release schedule, um, we're implementing like a new format for the the future army books. I mean the the Infernal Dwarf book it got released. Obviously the Slim book's been released now. And there, yeah. will, there will be like a legendary army book when everything's in place. But there's just been too many delays with this one. And with Corona, we just wanted to get it out. I think that that's, it's really the, the right call. I think that instead of just keeping delaying it and having it like chalk up the whole release schedule, like just, you know, if something's lagging behind, I don't think it's bad to release the other parts of it. Like in this case where I don't remember exactly who you're waiting for, but say you're waiting for some background art or whatever. To make the legendary book complete then you know it's fine to release the rules for now and like some tidbits of the background and then you know we'll still appreciate the whole thing when it arrives so yeah amateur time will do its usual uh, full background review when it <laughs> drunk <laughs> yeah <laughs> legendary army book background i mean it's a it's a quite a complete i mean i'm trying to be i'm trying to be non-sassy for a moment uh it's quite it's quite a complete uh you know, um, like the short book or the, the, the army book is, 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 it's got a lot going on in it, you know, like hold no, spared no expense as it were. <laughs> Rules wise. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, my, my whole question is like, which of these seven different insane ma matchups, like lineups am I going to build on my list, right? Like, I honestly <laughs> have been thinking about fucking getting a 3D printer and printing myself a bunch of Infernal Dwarves after reading yeah, it. Really because, cool. because like, they seem so smashy. <laughs> they look like they want to, like, I want to smash with them. They're just fucking crazy. But yeah. 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 So thanks, Jeff, for your mail. Yeah, hopefully Cheers, we answered all your questions. If you want to send us another mail, feel free. We will read it out. Um, and we, I think uh, we have one more mail. And this is from a guy that's probably a little bit jealous that we had someone else actually write into the show for once. Yeah, spurned lover. Yeah, so he, he couldn't be outdone. So, of course, this man needs no introduction. It is Tom Tucker. It's a long, it's a long mail. I'm just going to read it from the start. 
I have a bit of beer before we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just like lubricate that front. Okay. Hi, Henry. You sickening sack of dog shit. I'm only halfway through your most recent episode, and fuck me, it is a cracker. So I just had to contact you for a bit of ball washing. I fucking loved your dwarf nerd rage, and I was right there with you in all of your whinging. Luckily, I couldn't understand a fucking word that short-ass little cunt from Shitland was droning on about with his dwarf apologism, emphasis on the jism. He did say one sensible thing, and that is Ninth Age needs to forget about all the legacy shite concerning dwarves. Agree. Anyway, please indulge me with a brief bitching session about holdstones. So, it's round five at a tournament, and I drew dwarfs. Dor- he, he spells every time he says dor- dwarfs. dwarfs, he says D-O-R-F-S, dwarfs, yeah. with my ogres. I'm like, cool. A bunch of short infantry for my ogres to walk all over the top of. Anyway, it's all going swimmingly with my troll eater, Great Khan, ass-raping a bunch of whole guardians, and then my opponent presents me with this gay beard unit, including King, facing the wrong way, having tried to deal with my ambushing kin eaters. In my turn... I think about charging the king's unit for a nanosecond before, <coughs> excuse me, before declaring charges with a giant in one flank, a bruiser bus with BSB on the other flank, and a second bruiser bus with a wizard into the rear. My opponent informs me that he has a holdstone, tells me what it does, but I'm like, fuck it, if this can't kill them, nothing can. I make all those charges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I make all those charges. Start trying to hide my swelling boner at the points I'm going to pick up. Obviously, the table is like slowly like tilting from his side <laughs> downwards. Yeah. I mean, it's Tom Tucker, maybe not. <laughs> anyway, after the combat is over, I lose by about five or six. All my units run. That must be the most retarded shit ever. I can't think of another unit in the game that could do that. My biggest problem with the Holdstone is that it's an item that covers for bad play. Ninth Age has done so much to remove that stuff and saves players from the consequences of shitty decisions and yet Holdstone remains. Anyway, fuck dwarfs and fuck anyone who plays them. Sorry, Casimir. <laughs> Keep That's the episodes right. coming. C-U-M-M-I-N-G. And well done for recruiting that Cucknadian bloke to come and contribute nothing for your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Can you trash talk Slant Slut Radio for being unutterable cunts and not reading out fanboy mail on their shite cast? In brackets he says, George is still lovely though. Anyway, I have been painting a few beasts because just like you, I'm into fucking animals. That's true, he's from the West Country. Oh yeah. What's your view on Gore-Tax overpriced too slow? Is there a sheep army? Yeah, beasts. They're kind yeah, of but, like angry goats, right? Well, goats, yeah, but yeah. can you make sheep though? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. see my Cyclops, he's got a sheep. Uh, well, he, yeah. I mean, but they're not, he's not in, the sheep's not in the army. I'll put some sheep, I'll put some sheep in the army. Get some like sheep men, you know, like yeah. a little bit puffy. Well, well, I can, some rams, they've I got can, curly horns. Yeah, I, can, I, can, I can sort that out, no worries. Yeah. It says, what's better for an agro beast herds army? Shamanism or druidism? Druidism seems dull as ditch water, but healing is so good. But there is shooting everywhere right now, and shamanism is really good versus shooting. Any ideas on a decent terrain piece that doesn't involve actual trees? For seed, lol, spunk of the dark forest. Ah, okay. So he's asking, any ideas for a terrain piece for the seed of the dark forest? So Tommy Tucker is asking about Gore-Tax. What's your view? Casimir, do you have an opinion? 
Gore, let's see. Gore Turks are the big monsters, right? That, uh, like, regenerate wounds when they kill shit. Yep. I think they're fucking amazing. Like, I get that they can be volatile because they have no armor, but, like, having trying to beat one of those in uh, close combat, I mean, they're tough work. Like, they can stop, like, a lot of things. I think I charged a chariot star with my UD in the front of one and just didn't kill it, and it held, and then he smashed me up. Yeah. Just like, uh, the Gortok just picked up the Pharaoh and squeezed him between his fingers until he died. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, they, are I five, they are 500 points of monster. Yeah, I mean, this, this is the same issue as when you buy a Sphinx, I would say, where the potential of the of these models is amazing, but then again, it has like it's such a low wound count that if you're unlucky, you'll just lose it. But you need to be the kind of player that can accept that, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, if you can learn to use them well, then I think they're really good. But otherwise, my opinion is yes, they are a bit overpriced, and so I think they their, die too easily. What are they for the for the uninitiated? Like, what's so what's so good about them? So they, let's see, I like they, to recall they, all their. They have rules. like the the perfect amount of special rules, which is one too many. So basically, think of it like a dragon with no armor, but they have more attacks, they have the primal instinct that the B-Sirds have, they have lethal strike. If they roll a 6 to wound, then that wound does D3 wounds, and they can heal a wound back. Yeah, so are they stubborn or something yeah, as well? Yeah, they're also stubborn on discipline 9, I think. Yeah, so they like... Basically, if you don't kill it, it's not going anywhere. Yeah, so you, you have to deal with it with shooting. Otherwise, it will rip a hole in your lovely army. Mm. Yeah, and it's still a resilient six, right? Yep, resilient six and I think six wounds, six hit points. Fuck. Yeah, so it's it's quite. I mean, it's quite resilient, even to to shooting. I would say. I, I would and say then, I would say not at all. You just got to roll six sixes and it's dead. Yeah, but that's the exact same of Sphinxes, and everybody raves about how amazing sixes. they are. But the Sphinx is Resilient 7. And no, it's 8. Resilient 8. But, it's, and it, but has it doesn't a, matter. And it has a 4-up uh, armor save. Yeah, yeah, I agree, I agree. But then again, the thing you, you uh, like shoot at it usually are like things that would go through that anyway. So I, I disagree. I think uh, the Gortak is much weaker against like just Strength 3 bows. Yeah, sure, sure. You're, I, I, in that I agree with you. Like, if you're facing an elf, uh, like kind of defensive army, then, then the, sure, it's gonna die faster. But then also the fact that it, if you feed the Gortok chaff, it has the chance to get back a wound, and one of those wounds is or hit points is really, uh, like that's gonna make a big difference. It's a very valuable hit point, right? Yeah. But yeah, and the I, fact I mean, that it goes in there with uh, with hatred. Does it have battle focus or is? Yeah, oh, it has. It has battle focus. Yeah. And it has the primal instinct. Yeah, so it goes in with hatred every round, basically at least, and uh, and battle focus, and then every six to wound is uh, d three wounds as well as healing. So I, I agree with you. If you can shoot it off, it's great. But once it hits combat, it just wrecks shit. But maybe that needs to be a little bit cheaper. But maybe it also needs to have like a little bit less rules so it can be cheaper also. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think you pay for like the potential. Yeah. Which is is kind of I guess it's fine, but it does it does make for like a very like all or nothing kind of miniature. 
Yeah, but that's what I mean. Like maybe it needs to just be slightly worse and be a bit cheaper. Like what you know, for example, drop the battle focus or something, and then drop its points by fifty or more or whatever. You know, something like that. Yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not sure really. Uh, what? How many can you have in an army? Two. Hmm. Like they're re- I've faced quite a, f- a few times two of them, and it can be pretty rough as the opponent but of course then once you manage to deal with them it opens up a huge hole in the beast's herds uh, army of course yeah i mean if you if you can kill one or two well if you can kill both before they get to you then you're fine if you can kill yeah. one then you're usually okay as well yeah but it's things like warriors or demons that don't have any shooting output that really struggle yeah well then again hellfire just wrecks these though yeah true hellfire best spell in warriors yeah, it's so I mean, good. you say that, but you still have to roll mediocre. <laughs> to you're just bad at rolling dice, Alex. Yeah. You I need some cheap dice. I had one day of decent rolling, and then it went back to the, normal. The, ne- the next question that Tom Tucker asks is... Um, he says, Well, he says, are the Gore-Tax too slow? No, they're not. They're fast enough, but as we talked about the rest. Um, shamanism or Druidism for beast herds? Oh, personal preference i would go with shamanism uh, because i i think that like the uh, the anti-shooting spells are really good but also the f- the pressure that shamanism gives uh, to your army is just amazing like i think it's one of the best paths just because you have uh, like you always have two spells that the opponent really doesn't want to have and the fact that one of those is putting an extra new mole in his backfield is just really strong and it's just it's very difficult to play against and I think that's also one of those things you have to consider is that you shouldn't think about it like what does this give to me you should think about it like how is this for the opponent to actually face as well yeah I mean I think you, you're building your list around either shamanism or druidism I think if you're going with like minotaurs and Gortex, the druidism is like by far the best choice because you can heal them you can increase the resilience and you can grow them back but sure. if, if you're going for more like a centaur ambush list with with more like a mixed arm style then shamanism is clearly better because it's a more all-round path and as you say it puts a lot more pressure on your opponent yeah but i think even like it I think also you should think about what you struggle with uh, as a player. Like if you struggle against gun lines because you just shoot stuff off, I will. I would prefer to play shamanism because it puts a lot more uh, pressure on the gun line. Yeah, I mean, yes, but you can you can kind of look at it like okay, well, the, there's going to be more pressure on the gun line, but the druidism is just going to heal all the damage back or prevent yeah. me from taking the damage in the first place. Yeah, I see what you mean. So I, th- I think druidism and shamanism do quite similar things in that in that sense for beast herds. Yeah. But at, at the end of the day, it's one is personal preference, and the and the other is like, what kind of list are you running? If you're running a, lo- a list with lots of monsters with multiple wounds, then it's probably better to go with uh, druidism. So if you're yeah. running Gortax, then druidism is probably better. But if you're uh, if you're taking uh, small units and lots of them then uh, shamanism is probably the way forward. Yeah, and you, I mean, you can always get an adept with shamanism to, to augment your druidism as well. Yeah, I also like taking... Um, if you're taking shamanism, I think I also like taking evocation as well. Yeah. So there's a quite a nice combo 
let's say you're taking an evocation apprentice and a shamanism adept. So you can say that you always get uh, reroll to hits because you have the primal instinct, right? Yeah. So you're hitting well. So the the kind of the tricky part is to wound well. So yep. with the apprentice on evocation, you get reroll to wound. And with an adept on shamanism, you get plus one strength. So you have like two spells that, that do similar things. Yeah, and that's it, what you want. Yeah, and that's exactly what you want. And you can also, with an adept on shamanism, you can also have savage fury, which makes you hit like even better. Yeah. So there, so if there you have like three combat buffs that, that can really, um, really put fear into your opponent. And uh, also, if you take an Adept on Evocation, you can also get Whispers of the Veil, which pretty much does the same thing as the other two spells. Yeah, I think that's a that's a decent, uh, unless we've already talked about this, Alex, but I think a decent idea every time you want to build a magic phase is that you want to have a situation where no matter what part of the game you're in, you can cast two spells that kind of do the same thing, so your opponent is forced to choose which one he dispels. So a good example of that is, like Henry said now, that you have... For example, you want to wound stuff better, so then you try to get two spells that are making your units wound better, like reroll to wound or minus one toughness uh, from evocation. Yeah. But then you also want to have uh, two minus spells. One, minus in the... one what, Kasmir? Uh, minus one resilience? Or yeah, what? You should probably eat ah. drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then, but, but then that's only half of the game, right? Like half of the game, you'll have to shoot uh, something as well or do something at range. So, if you're warriors, you want to have at least two magic missiles. So you, even if you're not into combat, you have two spells to cast, and you can split your dice between those. So your opponent has to say, "Do I want to take Hellfire, or do I want to take uh, what's it called, the uh, Grave Calls, something like that?" Right? Like said, like a big spell or or the um, Hand of Heaven. No, fuck. What is it called? Ah, the comet, I forget. Wrath of God. God, that's the one. Yeah, but you only get that one if you have the um, Exalted Herald. Yeah, or the uh, Battle Shrine for the Sorcerer. Oh, right, yeah. Like, I, I find the Battle Shrine to be really good if you, like, you have Sorcerer on there and then you, so you get access to, Ra- to Wrath of God and you can run something like uh, evocation on the wizard, but you can still take either Grave Calls or Wrath of God through the, the Battle Shrine, which is really strong. Yeah, it's nice because the, I mean, the Herald's quite expensive. Yeah, it's, it dies easily as well. Uh, yeah, so that's, I've, I've had a lot of fun playing with a Herald, but it's one of those things where I'm like, oh man, I really kind of need to save, like I can't just rush him in anywhere. And you no. just need to save him in because he's so expensive. I definitely want to make sure I get my my points in casting out. Yeah, well, I I play the herald at the singles at the ESC the at the like European Team Championships. Yeah. And uh, I found that I, for most of the time I just like flapped him around or ran, either ran or flew around and I didn't actually fight that much. I just kind of flew around and cast spells and didn't die. Yeah, and he's got like seven attacks, right? Like. He's, yeah, which is a bit disappointing. It's like if you can't use those, if you're just using him for his spells, it's kind of like, oh man. Yeah, it's a, l- a little bit of a waste of points, right? Yeah, but yeah. I guess it comes down to how you play. But yeah, the, the last question Tommy Tucker asks is any ideas on a decent terrain piece for his pubic hair? 
by that he means the dark forest. So, um, I think right now, like, I'm in the process of building some terrain. I think these will be up on the Amatime P-Log uh, very shortly. Uh, Forest-wise, um, I actually really like the 2D terrain in some respects. It's really good for putting, like, underneath stuff. So yes. like, you put the 2D terrain underneath, and then you, on top of it you put, like, the regular terrain. Yeah. So, for example, I'm building some ruins, which is the 2D ruins terrain. And then on top of it, I've put, like, um, a garden of more graveyard wall and, like, a little crypt. So that's kind of, like, my, uh, my ruins. And then for my forest, I have, like, a forest, and then I just have some trees on bases that I've... I've built, and I, th I think that's like the the happy medium when it comes to terrain, because it's both functional and looks good. Yeah. So I think if you're if you're planning on building a dark forest terrain piece, you should just buy a set of terrain because it's that's like the the most u the most functional thing that you can buy, and then just put some buy some trees or make some tree bases to put on top of the uh, the forest two D piece. Yeah, exactly. And then you can even make, uh, you know, like little dioramas or something like that to go on top if you want to be creative. You yeah. know, uh, like having some beastmen doing some shit to some humans or some corpses, stuff like that. Like just little pieces that you can then move off when you need to put your units there. Yeah, and you can be create as creative as you like with the um, with the with what you put on top of the two D terrain. You can put like rocks, you can put trees, you can put like pretty much whatever you like, so long as it looks like a forest. And uh, yeah. if, if you really wanted to make it like really beast herdy, you could buy like a herdstone from Games Workshop. Yeah. And add that to it as well. Yeah, that mall, you have it, right? It's really nice mall. I actually have, I have two of them. One of them is like a in, pro in progress impassable terrain, and one of them I've put on a 50 mil base for a unit filler. So yeah, I actually really like that that model. So yeah, that's uh, that's the mailbag. So thanks, nice. thanks guys who sent us mails. Really appreciate it. it. Makes the podcast a little bit longer. Not that it needs to be much longer, but uh, <laughs> it gives us something else to talk about. And thanks for the yeah. sweet new nickname. <laughs> and uh, if you want to send us more mail, you can do so by sending. Uh, mail direct to amatimedk at gmail.com Without further ado, let's get into the Infernal Dwarves. Fuck yes. Finally. <laughs> Before we get started, because, uh, you know, the, the, the poem is an epic poem, as they say here in Scandinavia. Um, can I just say that I, I, like, loved this more than any of the other, um, like, flavor texts that I've read so far. 
Well, this is like your actually your first kind of army book release that you've experienced, right? I mean, I've read I've read the Warrior of the Dark God army book. Um, I read the giant flavor text. Yeah. Um, and I read some stuff on the Ninth Scroll, like lightly. I um, going through it. I, I haven't been very detailed with that effort, but Warriors of the, Warriors of the Dark Gods, I, I put a lot of interest in when I was reading it uh, because you know I wanted to get a bit of the back background and then yeah. the giant text. Uh, you know, we, we did were, the podcast. We were doing the podcast, so I wanted to prep for it. Um, and this was, but this was like really. Like I think really flavorful. Like, yeah. I feel like there's a whole universe here now that I really like. I could really fall in love with. Uh, I, I, like I, I think that's really cool that you say that because this is just like one text from a army book, and the fact that you you got so like interested in it, yeah, just from this one text kind of speaks a lot to the the level of the Ninth Age background. Yeah, like the writing for this was brilliant. Um, I, I would yeah, say it's so good. I would say comparably, like the Warriors of the Dark Gods writing, got exhausting, you know, and that's the army I'm the most interested in. Um, and I got like tired of reading, um, like all of this long prose about um, about these different units, and especially from the perspective of like a dude who's just kind of like, so then I was doing this thing, and I saw these other fucked up things, and then I saw these other guys, and they were pretty fucked up. And like you wouldn't imagine what this looks like. It's super fucked up too. You know, but like this was like this was like proper epic poetry um, and and real fiction in my opinion, right? Like it, it's a thing that almost like it doesn't have to be part of it doesn't have to be part of the game. It it, it genuinely is lore and myth, and, and it's written in a way that has a it has a bit of Terry Pratchett in it, you know? Yeah. Um, in the cheekiness of the lawyering and uh, and whatnot, which I loved, um, and the fact that basically this lawyer turned himself into a god, basically, uh, you know, on a like on a technicality, is I think brilliant, and um, and I just hats off to them, in my opinion. I'm gonna gush over this. It's not gonna be as much sass on this one. <laughs> Save the sauce for later. Yeah. Like I literally like the, it's so it's so like well written, but also so funny. Like I laughed out loud, loud like just sitting by myself reading this a couple of times. Like, it's just brilliant. It's so nice. Yeah. So Kasmin, maybe you actually maybe then you should start with the first um, the first chapter of the, the first epic, tablet. The yeah, first can tablet. I, can I just- uh, can I just comment on the first part first uh, with the um, so so this is presented to us like uh, as uh, if the uh, scholars of uh, some city in the empire has uh, done research about this uh, epic. So first it kind of talks about how they found these tablets, and uh, the thing that I found really interesting with this, which I wanted to to discuss, is that it it says that this guy uh, professor. Petank or something uh, oversaw an, an excavation an excavation that was somewhere in the uh, infernal lands, and then these infernal dwarves just come to the excavation, or he goes to them to ask about what the you know what something means on the tablets, and they're like, "Yeah, cool, bro. Just you know, take some copies. We'll keep the tablets here, and you just go home to your human lands." And I thought that was quite interesting because I thought the infernal dwarves were like really you know, slavers and evil, like I didn't expect them to have this kind of, 
familiar interaction with uh, normal humans or like other uh, cultures, I guess. Yeah, I mean, as we've said before, there's there's no real like like there's no like inherent evil in the Ninth Age world as we saw with the Warhammer world. So yeah. the Infernal Dwarves are obviously more pragmatic. So I think um, maybe from their point of view, they see it more like, well, if, if this person's interested in the, our gospel, then maybe it's better to, to let them be interested and spread the word of Kibbutesh or whatever, Asherok. And, yeah. and also maybe, maybe there was some like something and some money that changed hands or something like that that wasn't really elaborated on. I mean, right? it's, it's also, no. it's all, <clears throat> they also say it's the only discovered text. So, so the fact that they found it and then some infernal dwarves show up, they're like, you found some new information about our history. Like it's the only text of that story. Yeah, well, the, I think I think you're missing that the, this is the only text of the story that's known to the humans. Ah. But I would imagine that the Infernal Dwarves have their own libraries and stuff. Ah, okay. Yeah. I was just uh, surprised by how, how chill they seemed. You know, like, and I like that because, they, as you say, they're not, uh, like, explicitly super evil dwarves. They're just, uh, you know, different dwarves with, like, a different culture, which uh, I found to be quite nice. Yeah. In it makes the it makes the intensity of their title a little bit funnier though right yeah like they're the infernal dwarves who are kind of like pretty cool yo yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know like they're pretty chill when you meet when you get to know them and everything so i think that's a fair point casmir yeah do you do you want to do you want to take us through the first tablet yes sure so uh so i'll just read through it let's see here you have to do a voice. You... Should I do a voice? Epic voice. He who has seen many things, I will make known to the lands. The greatest of rulers, most excellent of kings, most beautiful of dwarves. His crown was tall as his beard. His axe was as big as a bull. Awesome to perfection. Majestic in glorious. Tremendous in supreme. Then there's 11 lines missing. He was raised, uh, he raised the walls of the great temple. He decreed of the tallest cigarettes. He cast many earth-shaking spells. He destroyed all his enemies. His people cried out to the gods. Kibotesh is too great. None can oppose his power. He takes whatever he desires. He destroys all in his path. So in that uh, text, there's a lot of like, for example, that said the uh, 11 lines are missing. Uh, that there's some, um, uh, like, uh, in some places, uh, they kind of added this, uh, you know, flair of having things uh, being, like, you know, erased by history. So there's some dot, dot, dot in some places with incomplete lines and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, th this is actually um, indicative of the actual epic of Gilgamesh, where we, where we actually don't have all of the text. I think that that yeah. was what it was like hinting towards, and also it's like a lit literary um, device. Yeah. Yeah, so you can kind of skip over stuff that uh, that people might not care about something. Yeah. Like I was gonna, I was gonna ask you as somebody, Henry, you've studied uh, you know like history a lot. Is this? Do you feel like this mirrors uh, stuff that you would find in yeah, reality? Yeah, hundred percent. Like the first, the first half of this, um, this is this. Ep let's call it an epic. 
yeah. is like almost word for word the epic of Gilgamesh. Oh, nice. So up until the point that Lugo goes to the underworld, is pretty much the exact epic of Gilgamesh. Oh, okay. But uh, I can I can go over the differences as we as we go. Yeah. So I, I the thing I wanted to comment on is the fact that his crown was as tall as his beard, yeah. which I find absolutely hilarious. Because <laughs> this is uh, this is like a a reference to the old infernal or at that time chaos dwarf moles that had like really stupidly tall hats and obviously long beards. Yeah. I just like the idea that they would measure like they like they have the same word for. Your like height as length, so you just say like, "Oh, your beard's very tall, bro." Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, they, they use the word "tall" like in in more places than necessary because you know they're dwarfs, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, do you want to go for the second one? You're doing so well. Uh, okay. Okay. The gods heard the people's. The, the gods heard the cries of the people. They saw the might of Kibotesh. They saw his strength, his untamed strength. They saw the suffering of the people. The gods decreed a second hero, one who would temper the power of Kibotesh, one who would shield the people from his desires. Asheruk took a tablet from the great library of the gods. He took the clay and threw it into the chambers of bureaucrats. In the offices, he created Lugar, greatest of heroes. Born of talking, given to great intelligence by the gods. He knew nothing but records and scribal duties. His days were filled with accounting and tablet shelves. A scribe's assistant found him in the room of records. He took Lugar to the flame of the people. Lugar saw the fire. No longer did he spend all his days in the offices. He went before the king. Lugar spoke to Kibotesh. You have exceeded the limits of your power. You are in violation of your constitutional authority. The law of Asheruk prohibits the abuse of power. Kibotesh, dot, 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 great rage. He challenged, dot, 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 in every court. Then there's some lines missing. His wealth, dot, 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 legal defense. But the appeal of Kibotesh was defeated. The anger of Kibotesh faded away. Lugar and Kibotesh reached a settlement and soon became great friends. Yeah, so this is this is also like similar to the the epic of Gilgamesh, where um, Enkidu is created by the gods as like a parody to Gilgamesh, where Gilgamesh is like this refined figure. Enkidu is like a uh, opposite of him, like a bearded guy from the hills, who kind of comes to put uh, to kind of some kind of curb on his power, and and they they also become like really good friends. I, I love the fact that the Infernal Dwarf Society, this dude, like just beats him in, in court and essentially sues him. And then they're like, they reach a settlement. So, you know, what a settlement means in my mind is like, oh, he has to pay him lots of money to fuck off. And then they're like, oh, now we have a settlement. Now we are great friends. <laughs> like, well, well played, sir. Um, yeah. <laughs> the thing I want to bring up is that line where he says he took Lugar to the flame of the people and Lugar saw the fire. Lugar saw the fire. The flame of the people is referenced several times in this poem, um, but it's not detailed as to what the flame of the people actually is. Mm. Um, it's when because the, there's another flame that becomes introduced later on, which I guess we'll get to when we get there. Um, but 
my whole thing is like, is, is like, maybe we can try to infer what the flame of the people is and what this, what the, or what these flames represent as we digest the text. Cause that's something that I've been thinking about. I'm, I'm not quite, it's not clear to me what that means. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure. Um, one, one thing to note is that like in the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, the reason that they become friends is they kind of like, they, they like accept each other's power and they like appreciate each other's power. Uh-huh. So in that they like respect each other. And that, that what's, that's what makes them become friends. And, uh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, they actually become lovers in some way. Because I understand ancient, like that type of ancient history, it doesn't seem like there was this, like the taboo wasn't really the same. It seemed pretty in, like interchangeable uh, with you know, what kind of person you took as your lover. Yeah, I don't know enough about Assyrian culture to comment on that specifically, but that's certainly the case in a lot of other ancient cultures. Roman and Greek, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm really sad that they didn't like now write in like gay dwarf sex. That would have been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> also the fact that Kinky there's all these sex. <laughs> like there's all these seekers and uh, like uh, disciples of Lugar running around with their shirts out, pecs out, guns <laughs> out. Yeah. I mean they're they're bears for sure. <laughs> for sure. <they're> bears. <laughs> okay, so uh, basically. I think what the what we can take from this is that Luger like litigates the fuck out of him and uh, they become <laughs> friends. Luger is like the most badass lawyer, basically. That's yeah. the, that's his introduction. So, but I also I also like the, the so I don't know was this something uh, that's in the epic of Gilgamesh as well? This fact that he's so he's this amazing king who's super powerful and super beautiful, and then suddenly he's just like fucking with the people too much. Like is this? Yeah, uh, this yeah, exa- exactly. So he's like all powerful and, and quite tyrannical. And um, and the gods send Enkidu to to like put a rain on him. Temper him, yeah. Yeah, temper him, and uh, yeah. and they become friends. And and in some way he does succeed, I think. But uh, at the same time, I think it, it also shows the pragmatism. Yeah. That um that they don't succeed, that they, that they kind of like rule together in like a a bad way as well. Yeah. But, but I, I also, I like the fact that, uh, like, in this, you know, like, you would expect almost that uh, when you have this, this story about your greatest king, he would be, you know, you're just great and amazing until some calamity happens. But it's more like, <laughs> before a calamity happens, before somebody else steps in, this guy is just a douchebag. He's already kind of a dick. And yeah. then... <laughs> I mean, you, then you, you, can, get... you can kind of um, appreciate, like, the, like the, where the tyranny of the Infernal Dwarves comes from when they're, like... The epic, epic hero in all their all their literature is a dickhead. <laughs> yeah, and there's there's no part here where like there's a good person. Like everybody who comes into the story is just a like a bit of a douchebag, but in different ways. Yeah, exactly. So I I, th- I think it's also kind of depicting the values a little bit of the Infernal Dwarves. Yeah. Yeah, I love the fact that Lugar is born of talking. That that is uh, <laughs> that, that line I really like. So um, the next part, um, so this is where the Brokeback Mountain continues. <laughs> Kibbutesh and Luger went into the wilderness. 
The king sought favourable omens from the gods. He lay down in the dirt and accepted sleep. In the middle of the night, he woke and cried out. Did something terrible happen? Why am I so disturbed? Why are my muscles trembling? <laughs> Luger, <laughs> Luger, my friend. <laughs> oh, which muscle is trembling? <laughs> Luger, my friend. I have, had, I have had a dream. I saw great carriages of black metal moving like hurricanes on a metal path, full of smoke and magic. They moved forwards with nothing to pull them, and they were coming right towards me. Luger said to Kipitesh, These are favourable signs. These carriages are the strength of the people. They come towards you because you, ha you lead at their head. The next day, they walked further into the wilderness. The king sought favourable omens from the gods. He lay down in the dirt and accepted sleep. In the middle of the night, he woke and cried out, Did something terrible happen? Why am I so disturbed? Why are my muscles trembling? Luger, my friend. I've had a dream. The mighty bulls of Shamuk came down to the world. They stomped all over the people, and they became the people. The blood of the downtrodden ran in the streets. Their hooves smashed my head into fragments. Lucas said to Kibbutesh, These are favourable signs. The bulls are the gifts of the gods given to you. They smash your head into fragments to expand the scope of your powers. The next day, they walked further into the wilderness. The king sought favourable omens from the gods. He lay down in the dirt and accepted sleep. In the middle of the night, he woke and cried out. Did something terrible happen? Why am I so disturbed? Why are my muscles trembling? Luger, my friend, I've had a dream. Again. There was a terrible eruption. <laughs> Living fire came forward and destroyed the kingdom. Malevolent creatures roamed the land. All good things burned, and a voice did... And a voice called to me and said, Kibitesh, you will die. Luger said to Kibitesh, These are favourable signs. The eruption is your glory. <laughs> <laughs> the fire is our strength. The land that is destroyed is not ours, but the enemies. For the true people will grow and thrive. So this is, this is like, I think, probably the most interesting, um, interesting part of the, of the whole uh, story. It's, it's yes. uh, really reminiscent, again, of the Epic of Gilgamesh, where uh, Gilgamesh has these crazy dreams, and Enkidu kind of twists them to make it sound like the gods are giving him a positive message, in the same way as Luger does to Kibitesh. Yeah, because it seems really here that Luger is just trying to, like, fuck with the king, because the king is obviously, re like, receiving omens of things to happen yeah. that don't seem great, and Luger's like, no, no, chill, dude. It'll be fine. Yeah, and I mean, we, and I think we're all aware, having read the rest of the poem, that those those are actually pretty accurate omens. <laughs> like all that shit, all that shit basically happens later on in the story. Yeah, I mean, the first one, the first dream references the steel road, I think. Yeah. And the the second part references like some kind of rebellion, and then the the guy, the Shemut Torah guys. Like Shemut is the uh, is the god of the bulls. So yeah. they, and I like I like the part where it says that uh, the the bulls become the people, which is a reference to the fact that you have these like half bull, half um, half dwarf centaurs. Yeah, exactly. And then the the final part is referencing the inferno itself, where the fire comes to the land and destroys everything. Yeah, so this is like the great calamity that kind of befalls the whole Nightfish world, where the demons like yeah. ra rise up and. You know, yeah. just 
can't fuck up for everybody. And um, it also says like Kibitesh, you will die, is like quite a standalone standalone phrase. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's yeah, and and I think that's actually a big part of the epic of Gilgamesh as well. Like towards the end, he's trying to work out how not to die, and he finds out that he's in fact what even though he's a god, he's not immortal. Yeah. So that, that I think that's quite important. So yeah, I I quite like this this part as well. Yeah, I liked how they kind of pulled uh, pulled it into all of these elements that you see represented in the army on the tabletop as well. Yeah, and, and you get a bit more into like how Luger's like trying to he's like the, the smooth talker just trying to talk him round. Yeah. So do you want to take the next part, Casimir? Or maybe Alex, uh, you want to have a go? Sure. Tablet four. Yeah. Lugar said to Kibotesh, You need not fear death if your place in history is assured. Let us go on a quest that we might be famed throughout time. In the dot dot dot, there is a monster, the mighty Sezurut. Its strength, dot dot dot, a mammoth. Its eyes, dot dot dot. Like a rock, its claws, dot dot dot. Its teeth are like a gnasher, its ta- it towers over, dot dot dot. Let us slay this te- terrible Sezurut. They will tell us in, they will tell of us in the great stories. We will be written in tablets that will last two, three ages, and we will not die. Two lines missing. Then the heroes made a great journey. <laughs> they crossed the frozen peaks. Glorious Samtar sent blizzards against them. They made fire in their camp. They came to the endless desert. Lugar called water from the ground. He showed the water documents. Proving beyond doubt that its proper place was in his water skin. Ashuruk sent fire against them, but dot 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 quenched. They came to the black ocean of tremendous Utuluk. They cut the forest, dot dot dot. A coracle fifteen dot dot dot. Smooth grain unlacquered dot dot dot. Four high twenty seven cubits all around. A classic design with a personal twist. Six planks per cubit, twelve, dot, dot, dot. Nineteen nails at each end, dot, dot, dot. Beveled edges, dot, dot, dot. Butt joints, dot, dot, dot. Dovetails. Just, just want to say nails, butt joints. <laughs> oh, zing. He used Dove a brace tails. to hold the 29 lines missing. Like, let's just not talk about this anymore 29 <laughs> lines superb finishing on the exterior and the figurehead they sailed across the ocean and reached the land of dot 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 they stood at the entrance to the land a road ran clear ahead into dot 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 the rolling hills dot 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 green grass and bumblebees <laughs> and a gentle breeze it was extremely pleasant they set off into the land There was a terrible roaring. A great shadow fell upon them. Terror came into their hearts. Luger said to Kibotesh, Do not tremble, for we are mighty in body and mind. We have faced our enemies before. We will slay the monster and take back its head. Sezurut said to Lugar and Kibotesh, 
You think to slay me? I will break your bodies and chain them to the deepest pit. You filthy wretches, you will never see the sun. You morons are the sons of earthworms who I laid with. He, has, <laughs> he, he, he banged earthworms. Let us have a mighty battle, odorous ones. Lugar said to Cesarit, Hold. <laughs> Hold. <laughs> we are not here to slay you. Any who have said to have committed slander and any any who have said so have committed slander and will be punished to the full extent of the law. I have here a tablet signed by the proper authorities. It shows that we are your friends. We would like to help you reach your full potential. Did you know that he who removes his head will live many years beyond his head retaining kin? If you do not believe me, I can take the, this information to another monster. Lugar smiled, his face honest and plain. Cesarut took the documents. He stared at every guess, line. Gets his monocle out. Yeah. Oh, hang on a second. Let me have a look at this. Card picking minute. He, he read the smallest words. Every gleaming symbol was immaculate. Cesarut said to Lugar, I must not delay. Please take off my head, friend, that I might live many years longer. And he lowered his head before Lugar. Lugar cut off the monster's head, and they returned to the city. Oh, I love this part so much. This is my this is my favorite part. It's so stupid. It's so amazing. I love it. I mean, this is this is where the Terry Pratchettism kind of hits its hits its stride in my <laughs> opinion. Take, take it away, Casimir. I like to talk about the history afterwards. Yeah, I mean, like, just okay. So, so, so first he calls water up from the ground because. You know, it has to be in his war skins because he has documents, bro. And then Because he, he's a battle he commits, lawyer, bro. Yeah, exactly. And then he's like, wait, 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 hold! <laughs> we're not enemies. It says here that you're my friend. And he's like, yeah, indeed it does. I guess we're friends. My gosh, shit, uh, he's got all the proper documents. So, so what I, yeah. I want to know is, like, how does this monster read Dwarvish? He's probably just pretending, like, oh, this, this guy can read. Fuck. I can't read. I just have to, like... Yeah, nod, nod along and agree with him what it says. <laughs> I just kind of yeah, think... Then, then I love the part that it's also... Uh, because, it's, of course, they're dwarves, so they care a lot about construction. So it has, like, all these details about how big this boat is that they built, like, all these cubits, and, and it's uh, lacquered or unlacquered, all these things. And then it's 29 lines of just the same shit, and then describing this boat, and then they're like, oh, okay, let's sail. <laughs> yeah, and then, the, and then the journey is, like, over in a hot, in a hot second. Yeah. <laughs> it's like then they got on the boat and got to the new land. <laughs> but but this, this is this is like actually really close to the epic of Gilgamesh itself, because in the original the the arc is actually described quite thoroughly, and I think this is just a nod to that description. But it's also like, so I think that it, besides that, it's it's incredibly fitting for dwarves as a as a mythological creature or, or being because of their interest in, in building and crafting, right? That yeah. like, that like there would be inside embedded in this tablet of the story of their greatest heroes. There's just like a recipe for a kick-ass boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
There's like, and by, because like there's some fucking dwarf that's reading that tablet that's just totally jerking off to the awesome <laughs> design. He's just like, oh, that boat. Oh, fuck yeah. How, look at those buttresses. Oh, man. 19 nails? Why not 20? Because 19's enough. Yeah, that's how I live my life. Up. You know, like, <laughs> save, on the, save on the nails, you know, like. <laughs> Just... Another thing I really like is this is the first time it comes up this um, this insult earthworms that we will see later as well because the monster calls them uh, morons uh, or the sons of earthworms I think, and they will I think use this, this again. I think this is a reference to um, the dwarves and the infernal dwarves having some kind yeah. of uh, animosity, let's say, because yeah, it... the, the the dwarves themselves, the dwarven holds. They, all their settlements are below ground, and the Infernal Dwarves, all their settlements are above ground, and they they kind of detest this, like, underground way of living as, like, a, some kind of negative poor person's way of living, let's say. Yeah, exactly. And it, that, this comes up later, and I guess we'll talk about, more about it there, but I think that's it's really nice. Like, that's a very good way of uh, distinguishing between the two. Yeah. Because if they were both kind of just living in mountains, they would just be like, oh, these guys have spikes and these guys don't. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I mean, uh, I guess we, we'll, maybe we'll get to it later on, but I, I think it's sort of funny because, you know, it's, again, with the name Infernal Dwarves, I just think of like this fiery deep and magma and, you know, demons and darkness and, you know, the Balrog. And, you know, in my to my token brain is just kind of like, yeah, the infernal in the infernal deep, like you know, the hell is in the fucking pit. The, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So the fact that they're like, fuck that shit, we live above ground, bitches, is like kind of funny for me. Yeah. You know? But yeah, it's cool. It's, it is a yeah, nice. Like a, how I how I think about them is essentially like, what if the industrial revolution English upper class was just dwarfs, you know? And instead of having slaves of uh, actual human beings, they had slaves of orcs, like just you know, <laughs> making their steam engines go everywhere. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I I guess <laughs> the, the the English upper class. Yeah, well, I mean, because like, I mean, don't you know, like, you, 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 or at least my perception of what I've heard about, like, you know, the Industrial Revolution in England, and it's just, like, they have to mine coal, and there's smog everywhere, and people working in these mines are these horrible conditions, and it's all to drive, like, the inferno of industry, you know? And, uh, yeah, uh, and yeah, that's kind of what at. I see here. Yeah. I mean, th that's kind of their culture, right? Mm. Is that they, they, they have to, they have to kind of, the slave economy fuels the, the whole infrastructure. Yeah. And hopefully we'll, we'll we'll hear a bit more about that when the full army book comes. Yeah, definitely. Okay, I'll uh, go to tablet 5. Yes. Okay. Gantar the Furious went to Ronala, the Netherworld. She went to see her second cousin, Reshal, mistress of Ronala. Gantar went to demand the return of Husid, her lover. She wept and gnashed in anger. She came to the gates of Runala. The land shook with her wrath. Gantar cried out like thunder. Let me enter, or I will tear down the gates. I will break the doors, and the dead will come forth. And the whole world will be devoured. Give me Husid, my great love, whom I killed in my anger. 
Reshal came to the gates of Runala and spoke to Gantar. Do not break down the gates, second cousin. You may enter Runala, the land that none may leave. And she opened the gates for Gantar, and Gantar went down beneath the earth. As she passed through the gates, Reshal spoke again to Gantar. Give me your armor and your weapons, for, those, for that is the law of this land. Gantar gave Reshal her armor and her weapons. Reshal drew her axe and killed Gantar in the halls of Runala. Abrupt. After, after Gantar went down into the netherworlds, death walked upon the land. Humans marched upon the people with merciless might. Pestilence scurred across the earth. Tides of barbarians broke upon the people like the ocean. The gods were filled with grief. Ashuruk spoke. We must send a dot 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 to Ronala. Let him make Reshal return Gantar to us so dot 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 might survive. Lugar dot dot dot. Ten lines are missing. He spoke to Reshal. My client need not answer any of your questions. You have imprisoned her without just cause. You are keeping her against her desire. For no true dwarf would wish to live underground. You have failed to provide evidence against her. You will release Gantar into my protection. Per the statutory uh, rights conferred in divine law of... Uh, Roman numerals are difficult. Let's see. Uh, I have no idea what this is. <laughs> Just say the letters. Yeah, C-D-L-X-I-I. Paragraph 18.3. Parenthesis I. 147. I, what did you say? 147. Divine Law 147. Or I will take this to your superior god. Reshal flung many terrible curses at Lugar. She commanded him to re leave Runala. Lugar spoke again to Reshal. Simply sign this tablet and I will leave here forever. And I will take the goddess with me. The big move. Reshal, goddess of death, signed Lugar's tablet. She released Gantar from Brunala. When Gantar and Lugar returned to the surface, the land erupted in triumph. There was at a mighty blast, and many enemy were swept away. And the people survived, and no true dwarf wished to live under the ground. No true dwarf. Yeah, I, I love the. I really love this shade, like uh, that they throw toward their like uh, whole dwelling cousins. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 quite interesting, isn't it? How the the two cultures are very different. I mean, yeah. without without spoiling too much and without knowing too much myself, what what I do know is that the the dwarven cultures was were obviously um, different cultures mm -hmm. for a long time, and then they kind of found each other in the grand scheme of things, and then after some time. They they then split again. I think after the inferno, they they split. Okay. So, so you have this kind of joint joining of the cultures, and then later on a splitting of the cultures. So obviously there's there's some kind of tension between the two, and they obviously see each other's culture as inferior. Yeah. And I think this is like just kind of. Uh, alluding to that, let's say. Yeah, I I think that's it's really <laughs> nicely done. I also like the fact that this uh, <laughs> this Gantar goes to the underworld to to get somebody back that she killed herself because she was pissed off, 
and then when she passes through the gates, the uh, like the keeper of death just kind of tricks her to and kills her. So like again, we have this introduction of characters where everybody's just a douchebag. Like there's no, <laughs> you know, nobody's a good guy here. But isn't Gantar a goddess? Yeah. Yeah. So like, she's a goddess who was killed by her cousin because she entered the land of the dead because she was so brazenly like cavalier about it she was like yeah obviously my cousin's gonna let me in here the land of the dead because i'm a fucking god too and fuck her (laughs) and i'm gonna get my husband back because i miss his i miss his his jank (laughs) and uh you know and like i'm gonna take him home so we can get boning and uh and then her cousin's like dumbass you don't come into my home (laughs) in my house it's my dick now and you don't you don't come into my house and not take your shoes off and then fucking wham bam, like you're stuck in the you're stuck in the trash heap. You know I like it. I like it's it's like a very ancient gods kind of story if you know what I mean, right? Like yeah. a treachery and trickery. I th- I think it kind of shows the the nature of the dwarves a little bit, like the the kind of treacherous nature, let's say, of the infernal dwarves. And, yeah, and I mean, like if my... if the gods are if their gods are treating each other like this, it kind of uh, it kind of gives them precedence to also treat people like this. But it also, this particular passage alludes to the fact that Reshal, who is the goddess of death, is like uh, aggressively into the rules. Right? Yeah, I mean, they, like they, an, all, they all are, right? It's the, an important, like, for, it's an important, like, sort of uh, foresight or, or foreshadowing. Yeah, like, the, the, the laws of the gods are, are paramount in, in all these cases. And they and they follow them to the letter. Yeah, but I, I still like they, even though they're really into the rules. When they get the fucking lawyer of the century, Lugar, who comes in and he just like starts fucking sprouting, you know, laws, numbers, and paragraphs and shit, and they just you it's know, like, ah, like, oh, damn, I didn't read that shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, he's like, right, instead he's of listening right. to him, they're just like, please leave forever. Like, please don't come back. Like, I hate this. <laughs> yeah. This is actually the first part of the story that I, I mean, I would say is original. Obviously, the whole thing is original, but this is the first part that's not really Gilgamesh, Gilgameshy. Okay. I would say, and I, I also, I also quite like this, and obviously it sets up for the later part of the story. Yeah, I, I, lo- I love the, the sassy part of, or I will take this to your superior god. It's like the white, <laughs> like middle-aged white woman. So it's like, can I talk to the manager, please? <laughs> so the the next part, uh, tablet number six. When Gantar saw mighty Kibitesh, she fell furiously in love with the great king. <laughs> Gantar cried out to Kibitesh, "Come to me, most beauteous lord." Let us be married, and let us, and together we will strike down our enemies. I will give you gold and marble and jade. I will make you king of the world, almighty one. Kibitesh addressed Gantar the Furious. Your offer is very tempting, my lady. I am very attracted to you and all women. I would like to be king of all the world. And all women. That's him, like, re- sorry. Paraphrasing. <laughs> He's also, like, just trying to, like, reconfirm, right? He's like, I'm totally not yeah, in I'm, love. I'm not gay. I'm not in love with my bro. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's totally you and all women. It's totally and all women, okay. totally. Yeah. I mean, she should have said, I want your dick, but she didn't. So that's why he said no. But I am too scared to marry Gantar the Furious. Dot, dot, dot. 
You trapped your last husband in the netherworld, dot dot dot, still alive. The husband before, dot dot dot, you disemboweled. And the one before that, dot dot dot, into an earthworm. Again with the reference to the earth. Mm. Before that, five lines missing. I already have a great friend now called Luger. Yeah, Yeah, you already have. Friend. (laughs) And he has told me your prenuptial, prenuptial, Prenuptial. Prenuptial, I was right. Contract yeah. is highly unfavourable. Gantar the Furious was very cross. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard that word in a while, cross. <laughs> she spoke to Shamut. Give me your strongest bull, so that I may kill Kibitesh. Shamut said to Gantar, I do not wish you to kill Kibitesh. He has achieved many impressive feats of war. Gantar said to Shamut, if you do not give me your strongest bull, I will smash open your bullpen. I will send your creatures to destroy the whole world. Shamrock gave Gantai his strongest bull. <laughs> it was the size of a city. And a single snort of the beast could open a hole in the ground, big enough to devour a kingdom. She led it to Kipitesh. Instead, she found Luger. Luger said to Gantai, Do you have the proper permit for this animal? If you do not, I must impound the creature and notify the proper authorities. Zing. And thus ends Tablet 6. Oh, I love like just the fact that he just needs to like even show her the papers and she's like, oh shit, I heard about this lawyer. <laughs> not this dick. So th- th- this one is also like a, almost a direct translation from the epic of uh, Gilgamesh. Mm-hmm. I forget what Gantar is called in uh, Gilgamesh, but uh, I d- I'm not I don't know, but it, I know that she's a hooker in, in Gilgamesh, <laughs> and that she wants to bang uh, Gilgamesh, but he's like, nah, you're a bit skanky, so uh, not going to do that. And then she goes to the gods and is like, give me your strongest bull, and the, and the gods are like, nah, probably not. And then she's like, well, I'm going to be really angry, and they're like, ah, okay. <laughs> so it's a bit more impressive in this one. <laughs> yeah. But uh, you can tell here that Shemitic... I mean, I'd say it's pretty impressive that, uh, <laughs> like, just a random hooker makes the gods give her a Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thing. But she was obviously going to be super cross. <laughs> yeah. But uh, in this one, I, th- I think you can tell here that Shemit is the war god, because um, he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's done a lot of impressive feats of war. So, so what I want to know in the epic of Gilgamesh is there as much lawyering? Like, no, obviously, obviously the Infernal Dwarves. I think the the writers want to really express the legal system here. Yeah. And uh, and that's not as important for the Assyrians. No. But but I think the the Assyrians is interesting because obviously the Assyrians wrote the first, or the they kind of took it from the Sumerians, but yeah. they had like the first uh, real legal code, and that's kind of in some way reflected in the Inferno Dwarves like need or culture of lawyering and yeah, is this the whole uh, like eye for an eye stuff or yeah yeah I, I, I'm, as I said I'm, I'm not like a I'm not a Babylonian historian at all so I'm, I'm kind of I'm guessing a little bit from what I do know um, but I think when also when you come down to when we get there when we get to the dwarven holes background, um, I think I think you'll see a lot of the the lawyering and the it's a little different for them, but it's but they they take like the letter of the law and oaths very seriously. Yeah. And I think this is common in all dwarven culture. 
Yeah, like I, I would I would expect that they that like now I'm just this has nothing to do with the Ninth Age, but I, what I would expect that to be more like is is like the uh, kind of Norse mythology where you like if you swear an oath to somebody that has some kind of weight, you know, like I, you give somebody your word and like you are trustworthy based on the fact that you hold your word or your oaths to people. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's inspired by Norse mythology. But I, I would say something that, as you describe, is quite true for the dwarves, and I think okay. that's uh, that's that the in, Infernal Dwarves translation of that is like a codes of law, and that's obviously inspired by like the Sumerian and Assyrian codes of law, which were like the the first law codes that were written in human yeah. history. So, so with that, I need more beer before we do a nice tablet. So let's just take a quick break then. So welcome back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, part 7. Sorry, I mean the... <laughs> Zing. <laughs> so, Kasmir, well, you, yeah, you want to take the part tablet number 7? Gunter went once more to the gods. She howled in terrible anguish. She oh. tore her clothes and smashed her axe against the wall. She cried out in mighty rage. Truly, lawyers are the most miserable creatures in all existence. Truly. The, go- <laughs> the other gods nodded at her wisdom. Gunther continued in her fury. Let us show our anger for this one called Lugar. Let us cast him down in our judgment. Let us send him to the netherworld forever. It was agreed amongst the gods. They cast the great spell of death upon Lugar, their hero. They smote him with every terrible disease. They sent a hundred hundred afflictions against him. Valiant Kibotesh summoned healers from every land, but none could save his mighty friend. And Lugar was taken to the netherworld. And that's the uh, the end of seven. So I like that they say their hero, right? Because they, they made him because people were praying to the gods to save them. Yeah. Right? From, Kib- uh, from Kibotesh? And then, so then the gods made Lugar as a hero to save them from Kibotesh. And then Kibotesh pissed them off so much that they were like, fuck him. <laughs> let's, send, <laughs> let's send him a fucking, let's give him ten plagues. Right? Like, let's ride his dick off and then fucking hit him with some AIDS. <laughs> like, what, yeah. a bunch of, what a bunch of dick fucking gods, in my opinion, you know. Well, it's kind of like the gods are missing mistakes, right? That they they kind of created this thing, and then now they're trying to destroy it. Yeah, yeah, it's the kind of thing where it's it's fun to sue people, but it's not very fun to get sued. Yeah, <laughs> like they're laughing the whole time while he's fucking look at that. You see him pull up that tablet. Oh shit, he's got he's got tablets on us too. Yeah. <laughs> this guy's got all the fucking backroom bullshit. Can't handle it. I don't think this one really um, says no, it, it, so much. 
No, it doesn't add much, but it, it does seem to uh, like really reinforce this idea that I first I, when I read the first time I didn't really get the gay vibe between Lugar and uh, Kibotesh, but the, like now the second time I really see it. Like when he's like rushing to the, the side of uh, of uh, like Lugar and like oh please don't die. Also, yeah. like the I find you, I find you, I'm attracted to you and all women. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I am. I, I do like all women. Honest. <laughs> yeah, they all like all, like and all women. Oh, what? Who said? <laughs> who was talking about that? Man? I mean, I mean, they are dwarves. So I'm not sure men and women are that different. Yeah, exactly. Uh, did you guys know in D and D the um, the dwarf women actually have beards? Yeah. Didn't yeah, I, I the didn't same know that the same in Tokyo. I think isn't it also in Tokyo that they have beards? So it's unclear. I don't. Maybe I haven't read enough Tolkien because I know it's in the movie where like Aragorn makes some joke about uh, the dwarf women having beards. But like it's never or or what I I don't know if it's actually like elaborated. Yeah, that, that's the only thing I know. I mean, I I read more about elves than I have about dwarves. So. Ah, of course you have, Henry. Yeah, sorry. Like if there's not a lot of like weird gay stuff in the elf books, I'll be really sad. Like it has to be there. There's not that much gay stuff actually. There's a lot of stuff about like gems and rings and stuff, which is pretty gay. But well, <laughs> on, on the whole, on the whole, it, it it's not that it's not homosexual. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess the dwarves are a little bit more manly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean the, the elves, the elves dude, like the dudes hanging out with dudes is gay. Girls making out with girls is gay. I mean, Gemstones uh, aren't, gay, aren't gay though. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was it was written in like the forties, right? So there wasn't much gay stuff back then. Yeah. Uh, wait, you talking about Tolkien? Yeah. Oh, dandies were pretty, pretty prom like not prominent, but like well known in English. Uh, well, it was well known, but it wasn't like ac- accepted, right? Yeah, but but then there's this whole thing about the Sam Frodo relationship. If that is has some kind of like homosexual connotation. I mean, yeah. if if you if you watch all extended versions one after the other, by the end it's like very clear that they're fucking each other. <laughs> I think you can you can maybe find like a YouTube highlight video of like how many times Frodo says "Oh Sam" <laughs> in like an emotional way, and it, and it seems it seems pretty emotional. Yeah. Um. But you know they're going through a hard time, you know. Hard time. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. Woof. <laughs> okay, so tablet number eight. King Kibitesh tore out all his hair until his head was bleeding. He took his tall gra- his his tall crown and hurled it upon the ground and stomped on it. He clawed his nails through the skin of his face. His teeth grew into tusks, and he ground his tusks upon his sword. He beat his fists upon the deathbed. He smashed his nose against the marble floors. He whacked his thighs with a rod of command. <laughs> rod rod of command. Mean? Love it. I love it. I love it. He wandered the land wearing nothing but animal skins, his beard torn and unkempt. He walked through the palace at night, wailing to heaven. He commanded the body of Luger to be treated with fine oils and adorned with the largest gemstones. See, dwarfs like gemstones as well. No, they definitely yeah. like gemstones. He placed the body in a coffin made of marble and jade. He placed the coffin in a pyre of gold. He placed the pyre in the center of a pyramid. He placed the wealth of the kingdom around the pyramid. He set the pyramid ablaze. God damn it. <laughs> Doesn't make sense. He made the people mourn for years, four times over. To Kibitesh said to 
Now I know that I am too mortal and I am afraid. Six lines missing. Kibbutish set off. He was attacked by lions, which he killed and wore their skins. He travelled to the mountains at the end of the earth. The way was guarded by giant scorpions, which he killed. He passed through a great tunnel into the garden of the gods. The ferrymen of the gods took him across the waters of death. The faraway, the only dwarf, eternal life. The faraway told him of a flower that... Four lines... Ugh, four lines missing. Kibbutesh found the flower. Returns youth. But on the journey home, it was stolen by a passing snake. <laughs> so th- this is... this is um, There's quite a lot to be said about this tablet. The first part, obviously, is that... Proves that he's a massive bender because he's really into Lugar and now he's dead. Yeah. Um, there's a few interesting points. Um, there's one part where it says... Um... He his teeth grew into tusks. Yeah. Yeah. And he swore and he ground his tusks upon his sword. So to my knowledge, I think this is something to do with the dwarves living close to the inferno causes some kind of mutation in their tusks in their teeth that causes them to grow tusks. I yeah. might be wrong, but I think that's what it is. Yeah, because I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, the inferno dwarves in general have tusks. At the like edges of their yeah. mouth. Yeah, and I think it's something to do with the Inferno, but I, I could be wrong. I can't quite remember the background. The other interesting stuff is the similarity, again, with Gilgamesh. So, um, Gilgamesh, in the story, he, again, he, like, like uh, Kibitesh, he's afraid of death. So he travels to the end of the world. Does his uh, lover die as well? Yeah, his, yeah uh, Enkidu dies, and... And this kind of, in the same way as it does with Luger, it kind of makes him feel feel mortal and worry about death. And he travels to the end of the world. And I think, I think it's, I think that in the Epic of Gilgamesh, there's like a king who didn't get killed by the flood or there's some, some kind of cataclysm that the gods call down and this king didn't die. So he goes to ask how this king didn't die. And the king basically says, "Well, there's not really any any way of there's not really any way of uh, staving off death. Everyone has to die. But yeah. you you could take this. You can go and find this flower. You can swim to the bottom of this lake, find this flower, and the flower will give you youth. And this this is what happens in the epic of Kibitesh. He finds this flower, and then." On the way home, a snake steals the flower, and that's the same in the epic of Gilgamesh. Okay, like I felt like may- maybe that snake part they could have changed to something. I guess. I think it's just a direct reference to the original, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I got that as well when I read it, but I felt like that was definitely some room to you know add in something different because. Yeah. I think I think I think it's because I think this is actually roughly where the epic of Gilgamesh finishes. Okay. So I think it, it kind of makes sense to add it in. And okay, it, so like a final march. Yeah, and there's there's like one more part in Gilgamesh where it talks about like the wall of... I think it's... I think the town is uh, Utra or something like that. I, I forget the name of the of the Babylonian city. But okay. um, basically, basically the, the story is kind of saying like... 
the human condition is is inherent and we shouldn't necessarily worry about it and it's yeah. de death is death is something that for everyone even the gods and even the mightiest yeah it's a nice moral yeah and I, I think that's kind of what maybe what they're they're kind of pointing towards in this in this poem as well so you, one of you guys want to take the next part? I'll take it. Lugar was in Renala. He was trapped in the netherworld. He was living under the ground. All things were dark. There was no kind of magic. He longed to be above ground once again. He went to Rishal, she who is death made flesh. Rishal's face was like a skull. Her tusks speared up into her eyes. She made dot 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 cower in fear. She freezing wind. Sorry, there was a dot 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 in there. Dot dot dot. She sucked <laughs> away. Dot 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 magic. Dot 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 despair. Dot dot dot. Three lines missing. Lugar spoke to Rishal in Ranala. Why am I here, O oh goddess? Why are your commandments not obeyed? Why is your word not respected? Rishal turned her terrible face to Lugar. She bid him explain his words. Lugar replied to Rishal, I have been in Ranala before. You commanded me to leave forever. Yet here I have been returned against my desire. How comes the word of Rishal to be ignored? Rishal shouted in anger, I command you now to stay, Lugar. You have come to my domain. I love that you're doing a Voldemort voice right now. And you will never <laughs> return above ground. Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry Potter. Lugar spoke again to Rishal. Here's the tablet that you signed with your own hand. Here is the witness and the notary stamp. This is your command that I be exiled from, from Runala. No other command can undo what you have wrought. Rishal was bound by her own word. She sent Lugar away. He returned above the ground. He went to the place of the gods. Targuk, gatekeeper of the gods, refused to grant him entry. Lugar said to Targuk, Why do you refuse me entry in my own domain? Targuk said to Lugar, This is the domain of the gods. You cannot enter. <laughs> Lugar said to Targuk, What is a god? Targuk said to Lugar, One who has eternal life. <laughs> I like you. You're going from Dumbledore to Voldemort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lugar said to Targuk, I have been banished from Vrunala for all time. I cannot die. I have eternal life. I am a god. Let me pass. And Targuk allowed him to enter, for he saw that Lugar was of the gods. Oh, oh my god. I Zing. Think it's like the most badass lawyer ever. It's like, I'm a god on a technicality. Yachts. And into becoming a god. It's just amazing. <laughs> I'm the hero of words. So uh, there's a, a few things I, I like this about this one, like from a historical point of view. 
You got your, uh, you're like, your gatekeeper to Asgard in the same way as you do in Norse mythology. I thought that was quite cool. Um, a nice little nod to, like, maybe some old kind of dwarf culture, games workshop type stuff, which we don't have yeah. anymore. Um, but it kind of shows that there's some kind of continuity there, at least. And, um, and also, obviously, like, you, you're kind of getting the... Every kind of every time we see Luger in these stories, he's just like lawyer, lawyering his way out of trouble and lawyering his way, like into power or helping out Kibitesh. The, these kind of things, and I think yeah. it's just it's like a really cool concept. I really I think the the background team have done a really good job in like turning the epic of Gilgamesh into like a, a ninth age story and making yeah. Luger into this really badass lawyer, and you can kind of also see the infernal dwarf culture where the the lawyer and the legal codes are really important and even if it like if it's written down as a law then then th that's it there's no there's no kind of going around it the law is the law yeah i have to say it's like one of those concepts when i heard it the first time when they're like oh yeah these dudes are like cool lawyers and you go uh what <laughs> what? Uh, what what do you mean but then you read this and you're like yeah lawyers Whoa. yeah well done first time i've ever in like i've ever applauded or cheered on the side of the lawyer <laughs> yeah exactly and one thing i wanted to say about this part which uh, i found interesting is that he's in the uh, underworld and it's uh, below ground and he talks about how she like sucks away magic and that that causes despair. So I thought that was very interesting. Uh, and it, I think it comes up maybe later as well, I don't quite remember, where they talk about that they're underneath ground and then there's no magic and that sucks. Yeah, so, and, and so something in the Ninth Age world is that um, underground, the, the magic is hard, like doesn't penetrate the underground as well as it does above ground. Yeah. That's that's like a just like a physical... Property yeah. of the Ninth Age world. That's okay. That's good. I because I yeah I didn't know that. That's nice. Because I think that really reflects well then upon like why the one dwarf civilization lives above ground and another one lives below. Yeah. And for an infernal dwarf, it's like when there's no magic, they're like ah oh, this this does this isn't nice. Like I don't want to be here. Yeah, I mean dwarves can use magic, but they obviously the dwarven holds see it as some kind of inferior policy and they they think it's a bit like outlandish and strange and why would you need magic when you can just do with what with your hands what you can do with magic but yeah. i mean they have magical items yeah but that's made by your hands right yeah but i mean it's, it uses magic yeah, yeah they they use runic magic and that's like something completely different hmm. but yeah that's just like a nice little um in like a nice little like kind of insight into the way that the magic works in the Night Age, I think. Yeah, that's quite cool. Okay, tell the number ten. Ashuruk, the king of kings, was displeased. He did not like dot 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 their loud voices. He grew impatient dot dot dot. He spoke dot dot dot. Seventeen lines missing. <laughs> a great decree and he made all the gods swear a great oath of silence that none might know what was to come upon them Luger came to the gods he said to them 
Why do you meet and talk and tell, yet tell none what you have said? It must be that you are sworn to silence. Yet I have here a tablet attested by Asheruk, giver of laws, a subpoena of any and all materials of evidence. You, <laughs> you must show the court signs of conspiracy. You must tell the great judge what has been kept secret. Lugar bound Ashruk by his own word. The gods told Lugar what had been decreed, and Lugar went to Kibotesh. He could not say what was confidential to the court, so he spoke not to the king. Lugar addressed the king's elbow. Elbow of Kibotesh, you must prepare yourself. There comes great calamity to the kingdom. You must build a cigarette of great height. You must gather your wealth and weapons at the top. The king replied, How high must I build? Dot, dot, dot. Ten times? Dot, dot, dot. Cubits? The king asked, dot, dot, dot. The signs of the altar? Dot, dot, dot. The... Must be exactly... Dot, dot, dot. Crenelations? Dot, 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 dot. Bitumen? 47 lines missing. <laughs> <laughs> and Kibbutz built the cigarette as instructed. So... <laughs> like I think this is where, here we have the the premonition of the inferno I think yeah I think it's like um obviously we had like the we had the arc from the flood story before mm-hmm. and now we have like another kind of isn't this also a flood uh yeah not quite yeah yeah it is a flood actually yeah yeah it's a flood exactly yeah so this is the this is the actual flood but uh, in, instead of building an ark, uh, he just builds a massive mountain of of a ziggurat. Ah, okay, yeah, it's not too far yet. So it's it's similar but not the same. <laughs> mm. And uh, yeah, and, and it kind of in the next as as you'll see in the next uh, the next tablet, it kind of goes into the same kind of flood story as in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Mm. As I said, my my knowledge of the text is reasonably hazy, but. Yeah, I think it's cool that he kind of like lawyers his way out of it again by talking to yeah. the elbow, which is a bit stupid, but it's it's not him. Yeah, like it's stupid, but it's funny. I I think that um, especially when the background is about dwarves, like one of the things I really like about dwarves is that they are a bit stupid, and uh, like that's something that I, I like that they've uh, kind of preserved in these things. <laughs> in what in what respects, like stupid? Like, when I say stupid, I don't mean, like, stupid as in mentally, like, less I mean, capable. Silly. I mean that they're, uh, like, you know, a little bit silly. Like, I, I like my dwarves with big noses and, uh, you know, like, grumpy and, like, they don't let go of anything. Like, this kind of stuff to the point where it kills them because they're just too stubborn to, like, you know, do something a smart way. Because they're just like, oh, I used to do it this way my entire life. Fuck you. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, like, I mean, if you watch the uh, Lord of the Rings again, you'll see that Gimli is just, like, the comic relief character all throughout the movie, right? So, like, yeah. that's kind of what I enjoy. Okay. And, that, and is that is that what you think when you're playing your all your Seekers? Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, they're basically too stubborn to, like, realize that they can do something else to run, like, then fight to the death. <laughs> well, I mean, I definitely think they're a joke, but not in the same way. <laughs> a dark, evil joke. <laughs> so do you want to take the next one, Casimir? Uh, yeah, sure. So it's number 11. Yes. It starts with oh, nine fuck, I just lines dropped my missing. paintbrush on my beer. 
Sorry. <laughs> I just put my paintbrush on my beer. Still <laughs> gonna drink it up. Yeah, still gonna drink it. <laughs> I mean, it's not that. Uh, it's not that bad for you. Okay. So dot dot dot. Like the ocean waves, there was none. There was no seas. Dot dot dot. For twelve times twelve days and nights, it rained. The waters washed away the fields and the houses. They washed away the cities and the walls. They drowned the west in its holes. The flood covered the land, and still the rain did not stop. Kibotesh preserved the weapons of the people. Atop highest, his highest of cigarettes he guarded, dot, 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 continued to rise. All this time, Lugar was in another land. He came to the king of the enemy and said, Ashuruk, king of kings, seeks to quench the flame of the people. The people require a new flame. We will use your flame to rekindle the greatness of the kingdom we have lost. The king of the enemy spoke to Lugar. Our flame is not yours to take. Lugar said to the king of the enemy, You have no flame. A flame belongs to the people. You are not people. The true people are calling in your debt. We have taken your flame as rightful collateral. These documents demonstrate the legal basis of foreclosure. <laughs> the gods are my bailiffs. Lugar took the flame of the enemy. He took the flames of the world. He returned to the kingdom at the hour of Kibotesh's doom. He drove away the flood with the world flame. He placed it at the heart of the cigarette. The gods saw what Lugar had done. They cried out in regret for extinguishing the first flame. They bowed down before the world flame. They made a mighty compact. The compact was drawn up by Lugar. The gods signed in triplicate. The compact bound them to protect the world flame for all time. There were other things written in the compact, which the gods did not read. <laughs> so I like this. I, I imagine that here he's going to the demons. Like, or some type of demon, at least. Um, so what I... To lead you into this, Casimir. So the thing is, now we've we've like we talked about much earlier in the, in the review about the flame, right? I I brought that up earlier, and now there's two yeah. flames, right? One, the first flame was this was extinguished, and now Lugar's gone and gotten another flame from the enemy. Yeah. So like, who is that? What what are yeah, we talking about? I I haven't read the Infernal Dwarf background that much, so I'm not hundred percent sure to be honest. Yeah, but I, I get the feel. So my interpretation, without having read the background, but like just my impression, is that they they do a lot of like binding demons and fire into their uh, weapons and, uh, and machines, and I kind of see this as Lugar going to some type of demon or or to the dark gods or something, and uh, kind of taking them and back to uh, to the infernal dwarves and binding them to their people. Yeah, yeah, it, it could it could well be that. As I said, yeah. I, I'm not 100 percent sure, but uh, that's a. I think that's, that's a, a nice. Theory. That's a pretty good guess there. I like that theory. That sounds cool. It's because because you know it's very vague in the poem. It's just the enemy, right? I also I also love the, the the there's a little bit of dwarf shade here in the at the beginning of this one where like the flood comes right and it, it drowns the whole world. Yeah. And then it says uh, at one point that it uh, filled the holes in the west. Yeah. 
have drowned the West in its holes, where so, essentially they're yeah. just talking about the, like these dwarf keeps in the mountains being filled up with water, with water, which I found quite funny. Yeah, so you have your Eastern Dwarves and your Western Dwarves. And so the East, yeah. Eastern Dwarves are obviously the Infernal Dwarves, and the Western Dwarves are like the regular Dwarves, Dwarvenholds. Mm-hmm. So that's like the two uh, different cultures there. And yeah, th- as you say, this is like alluding to the fact that no, no real dwarf lives underground. Yeah. At least that's just like their opinion, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's cool. Um, as a story, it's interesting that they go with a flood. Well, it's the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? Yeah, so I guess it's just sticking to the story. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of unexplained, I guess, why the gods decided that they needed to uh, extinguish this, the flame of the people. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the flame of the people is, but it would make sense in some kind of fantasy way that there's, like, some kind of special flame in the in the temple of Lugar or whatever that's always lit. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like it just represents the, like, the Infernal Dwarf people in general, like, as the, the, their spirit or something. Yeah, Pro- so probably something about, generic like that, right? <laughs> yeah, like, when you, you talk about the extinguishing the flame, it's more like just, you know, killing them or extinguishing their culture. Yeah, as a, like yeah, a, yeah, as yeah exactly. Luckily, so, I guess there's enough slaves to <laughs> bang their way back. So the last one. Behold, Luger the Triumphant. He gained great, dot, dot, dot. The crown, dot, dot, dot. To him, dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. All the peoples, riches, entire world, all judges before him. Seven lives missing. The people, to him. <laughs> How can we serve Luga? But when they came to his chamber, they discovered it was empty. Luga had no desire for riches. Luga did not wield the power he was given. Luga was, dot, dot, dot. Journey, for many days, dot, dot, dot of Asherok, two lines missing, the flame of kinship of Asherok he sought, the remainder of the tablet is broken off. I don't really think this gives us all that much. No, I, I get the feeling that this is something that will be expanded upon in the rest of the um, of the book. Yeah, I, I'd hope so. Yeah, I, I get the feeling that he goes like to this King of Kings, but I, I get the, like the impression I get to the King of Kings is that he is ha- connected to fire and like the something central in the Infernal Dwarf culture. And now Luger, now it's time for Luger to just go there and like get that shit from him as well. Yeah, yeah, probably. Um, I think yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I as I said, I'm not really sure what this is alluding to, but it kind of says something about the flame of kinship. Yeah, that was what what I took away from it. Yeah, so that's basically the misery. Of- that was the 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 epic of Kibitesh. Mhm. So what what's the overall thoughts, opinions, and goods and bads? Like I said at the start, I loved it. I mean, yeah. I can't I can't gush enough on this one. <laughs> gush away, it, bro. It's it's really well written. I think it's neat that it's based off of the Epic of Gilgamesh. I think that's a really neat um, idea. It, it kind of sets the tone for the Infernal Dwarves being like based on the Assyrians a little bit, I think. Yeah. yeah. Also, I mean, you guys told me that, for example, that the Vermin Swarm, they, um, they're 
they're somehow set on the Roman Empire. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think there's going to be some kind of Roman inspired um, theme behind the Burma Swarm. So like, yeah. it's, it's neat that there is um, because it, again, like also you know the the world map is sort of like a modified map of the world. The world, right? Yeah. And so the idea is that this is like maybe several ages beyond our current age, right? Where yeah. Things have like changed yeah, and reverted, uh, altered, magic has entered the world, all that kind of stuff. Um, but like the idea that like history, our current history could become the lore and foundation, founding principles of like other culture, like other future cultures would be kind of interesting, you know, like Gilgamesh versus, um, um, sorry, what's the name of the, the, the character, the main character again? Kibitesh. Kibitesh. Gilgamesh, Kibitesh, you know, like, it's not a big leap, you know, it's like, no, none of the characters in, 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 in the game world are wearing, like, um, None of them were. None of them are wearing like no effects T-shirts, but you know, like the the point is that there's like some grounding in rea- in our reality that influences this stuff. Like it's not just maybe it's maybe not just the inspiration for the writers, as far as for artistic inspiration or or whatnot. It could also be maybe part of the premise of writing the backgrounds of some of these. Uh, Groups, yeah, it's it's definitely like based and based on something, right? Yeah, yeah. I I really like that direction for the fluff in general. Like that, uh, it gives everything like quite a, a nice base to to work off and becomes like relatable. Uh, and I I also find it quite cool because to me, I never was like really interested in like purely historical gaming because I I, I kind of. Every time I play something that's uh, that's a game that's not a fancy game where it's grounded in in reality, I, I I kind of become a bit bored because there's no magic, there's nothing like supernatural happening. But I do also get that feeling where I'm like, yeah, I want to play the Assyrians. They sound awesome. But then it's it's really nice when then they appear like in a different form in a fancy game as well. Okay. But if would you consider like using like um, historical models or something for these? Uh, not for I don't think for dwarves, but uh, definitely from uh, for other things. I've definitely considered that uh, in the past, like uh, for the undead armies, like uh, UD using uh, different types of uh, like Bronze Age culture models for UD would be perfect, I think. Or of course for Empire or uh, uh, Kingdom of Quetain stuff like that. I mean, I I definitely. Like I talked to you about this uh, when I was trying to, when I was thinking about picking an army that, um, you know, I, I think that I also think the dark elves are quite cool, but you, the what elves, uh, I don't know. What are they called? Dread elves. Dread elves. Dread elves. My bad. I'll drink. Um, the, I mean, I haven't looked at them since, but, um, but I just like that, you know, there's basically ninjas and stuff. In their group and then i was telling you how i thought you know i would make maybe like a samurai ninja army yeah based off of that but it looks like um options for a samurai ninja army are, are quite limited there's like that one 
that one model company that makes actually quite large samurai armies. And then I could get some random ninja miniatures. Um, so it's not that it's not affordable. Actually, like that, those, I forget who they are that make them, but they're, I remember the pricing was quite good, but um, it was just kind of disappointing, the styling. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I was like, oh, I guess maybe I would end up just trying to find some uh, Dread Elf uh, or similar characters from Games Workshop or something like that. Yeah. So so based on like the the background that you've seen from from this article, what's your initial opinion on the Infernal Dwarves background from what you can kind of fathom? I mean, it's, it's pretty limited from what you can tell, but do you, do you get kind of any inference from this into into the culture or feel of the dwarves? Well, I think we've talked about it before, all throughout this idea of, uh, of all the law codes really uh, like uh, playing a huge role. And you see that in the names of the actual army book as well, when you look at, like, you have upgrades like litigators and... Uh, I think the uh, the half bull one has also something that sounds like a little bit of you know lawy stuff like that. So, so I feel like it alludes to that, and I I think that this one definitely gives you like I I hope that the rest of the background is as amazing as this is. But like if this was what you chose to represent, they chose like the right part of it. I think like this is this really got me like me excited to read the rest. Awesome. Also for the whole concept. That's that's good to hear. How about you, Alex? Uh, I mean, again, like it, uh, it told the story, it told the story in a brilliant way. Um, and a lot of it for me is like, what's like, what was not said, right? Like the simplicity of doing it in an epic poem obviously had its challenges and, um, and I appreciate that, but I think that it also really boiled it down to it's like most important parts. So, so it was quite easily digestible and not so verbose that I was like rolling my eyes at the, at the, at the descriptiveness of the text, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't too heavy, was it? No, but it also just yeah. wasn't too, like sometimes, uh, you know, I, uh, I've been around like lots of writers and sometimes like writers really get into their own writing right and it's it's more it's it's like they get super super into what they're writing and that just gets them off super hard and they don't <laughs> they don't think so much about the people that have to read it after they're just like yeah. oh yeah but like i got to do these things and like that was so good in that paragraph and like i fucking nailed this right and like <laughs> and you're like okay right, but dude. now i'm now i'm staring at like five thousand words for like yeah. the description of you know x and you know for for, for me, this, like, told a bigger, grander, more interesting story than, than like, um, the same number of page like, if you had filled those pages with text, like, descriptive story text, I think we wouldn't have gotten at as gripping a, a tale. Because I think I would have got I, I would have gotten lost in the in the in the volume. So in conclusion, we we like this. Love one. it, love it. Yeah. So to Alex's point, I think this is something in general for the, the that really is a compliment to the the knife edge way of uh, telling the story. 
because a lot of times you get you get people who want to have more like verbose text about uh, from the perspective uh, like direct perspective of uh, of different races or that it's uh, like telling the facts of the world but i think this type of storytelling like right here i think they've really done it the right way like if this uh, this is how they want to tell it and i think they really succeeded this time and uh, like getting us to to get a lot of information but in a in a way which leads us to uh, like have more open questions that we want to know the answer to so we're intrigued yeah 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 i'm i'm definitely interested to read the rest of the the infernal dog background yeah totally i mean yeah, um, same. Yes!